All right, we're going to go to the next name on the list. All right, here we go. Don't show them. Yeah, show them. Don't, don't. You want to hold that a little lower? No, no, stop. Why does Pettengill get all the good jobs? What do you mean you get this? I just here need to get a little closer. JR and myself. How about me, Jersey? Woo! Oh. All right. Now, is your phone ringing? The number no. you have reached is 4344. It's four, been disconnected! Four, zero, one. All right. We're going to keep trying. We're going to keep going. Hello, Ananda. Let's see what Austin can do with him. No. How about that? It's going to be a total Austin dropped right on his head. And how much more punishment can Austin run out of? No waste time. I was just hitting. Oh, at heart. Stone Cold Steve Austin. He's done. You're right. He's done. And he could very well be. Now he's going to kiss my ass. I'm afraid... Austin is hurt and hurt badly. At least Austin's legs are moving. He may have suffered a stinger there. Mr. Pettengill will not be uh, a fast dialing specialist of any kind. You should have got somebody smarter to do this, like an eggplant or something. Uh, I got the number already. Oh, is your phone ringing? Come on. Come on. We're calling you. Hello? Hello, is Michael home? Moment. Just a moment. He's coming. He's coming? Yeah, oh, yeah he's coming. Let me see who we're calling here. Hello? Michael! Yeah. This is Todd, Sonny, Stable. Hi, we're calling. Are you watching SummerSlam right now? Oh, uh, no, sir, I'm not. <laughs> Michael's has had enough. Michael's was on the outside and did not see. Did not see. It is not. That's worth a million bucks. Ooh. Hey, well, almost. 
You might not know it yet, but that's better than a million bucks. Are you in any way in cahoots with Bret Hart? As preposterous as that may sound, a lot of people are wondering that. You know, I've always known you were a Nimrod, but now you have convinced me that you are the dumbest son of a bitch I have ever met in my life. Mankind, you... What are they saying, McMahon? What? I don't think it's complimentary. Why don't you ask your sister and your mama how gay Sean is? Welcome, everyone, to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. My name is Rory McNamara, and today I am taking you back in the time machine to August 1997, where we will discuss all things WWF in Volume 1 of our editions for you this month. Volume 2, Part 1, is our first WCW show, looking at the Road Wild pay-per-view. Volume 2, Part 2, also WCW, taking a look at Clash of the Champions. And Volume 3 is our ECW show and their Hardcore Heaven pay-per-view. But we are Volume 1, WWF, and four years after the very first Time Machine visit, I have Mr. Bob Bamba, who created the Time Machine. Bob, how are we? Yeah, God, I didn't think about that. God, it is the four-year shit. Um... Yeah, good morning. Uh, weirdly nostalgic now, but yes, uh, good morning. I'm very well, thank you, Rory. I'm glad. What a show to take you back to. And we have one of the guinea pigs of that first voyage, Mr. Craig Wilson. Craig, how are we? Uh, very well, very well. I've not been described as a guinea pig for a while. That's as good as it's going to get. So, uh, oh, it does, <laughs> it does look like one, so there is a bit like that, but there we go. Oh, it's going to be a long <laughs> show. It's going to be a long show. Right then, let's kick us off with the news. Uh, Craig, you're there first, I think. What have we got? Yep, Bret Hart is the new WWF champion. He won the title from The Undertaker in the main event at SummerSlam after guest referee Shawn Michaels accidentally hit the dead man with a steel chair. Knowing that if he was seen to favour The Undertaker, Michaels would never uh, be able to wrestle in the USA. He had no choice but to count the fall. The match's other main stipulation was that Bret would never wrestle in the US again if he had lost. Bret's victory came on a SummerSlam show, which despite being a legit sellout of 20,000 again, was somewhat of a failure, certainly from an in-ring standpoint. There were wins elsewhere for Mankind, Goldust, the Legion of Doom, the British Bulldog and Los Bariquas. The entire show, however, was completely overshadowed, sustained by a serious neck injury or by Stone Cold Steve Austin during his Intercontinental title match with Owen Hart. After around 15 minutes of action, Hart set Austin up for a tombstone reverse pile driver spot, but Austin's head was far too low, and uh, as he dropped to the mat, he basically wore all of the weight on uh, on his head. Um, Austin somehow was able to recover in about uh, a couple of minutes after the incident and secured a barely passable roll-up on Hart for a three-count. Austin was obviously booked to win the match, and the stipulation if he lost would have been he had to kiss Owen's ass. That didn't really know to go. And he wasn't even able to walk to the back afterwards, although with help from a referee. Despite appearing in a non-wrestling capacity on the 4th of August, it was reported in some quarters shortly after that the then non-diagnosed injury could end his career completely. It has since come to light that he suffered severe trauma of the C4 and C5 vertebrae. He has seen numerous doctors and specialists this month, all of whom are particularly concerned about the fact fittings haven't fully returned in his extremities. The WWF are privately talking about an October return to the ring for him, but at the time of the recording that does seem highly optimistic. 
Shawn Michaels officially turned heel the night after SummerSlam in an interview in which he lambasted Vince McMahon, The Undertaker, and most importantly, all of the WWE fans. Michaels completed the character switch and now ostensibly the number one heel in the company. His first major match as a bad guy will be against The Undertaker at next month's In Your House Ground Zero pay-per-view in a contest which appears to be stated as a main event, despite no title being on the line. Throughout the month, Michaels appeared to be putting together in an on-screen stable. At his own request, it now seems as though both Hunter Hearst Hemsley and China will be aligned with him, although as of yet, no kayfabe explanation has been given for this. It is, of course, a nod to the friendship Michaels and Hemsley had behind the scenes. And this took place in addition to the appearances on both the 11th and 18th August editions overall of his insurance policy, who turned out to be Rick Rude, making his WWF return after a seven-year absence. The original plan was seemingly for Michaels and Rude to be the frontrunners of the stable, although that appears to be downgraded to Rude being an insurance salesman for anybody in the company. Rude is currently working without a contract, and his appearance on WWF television comes as part of a loose talent exchange with ECW, as the uneasy alliance between the two companies is seemingly back on again, at least for now. Turns of the deal for Rude showing up at WWF involving the Fed mentioning by name ECW's then upcoming hardcore heaven pay view during the August 11th Raw. For good measure, Jerry Lawler, who will go on to face Tommy Dreamer on that show, actually brought it up on two separate occasions. WWF effectively loaned Sonny to Philadelphia for their pay-per-view as well as sending Al Snow there for a longer-term deal which could be anything up to 12 months. It's likely the companies will be hiring talent for each other for a while to come although expect more WWF workers to appear in ECW Arena than vice versa. For the first time in company history, there will be two pay-per-views hosted by the Federation next month, as well as the usual In Your House mentioned earlier, an event called One Night Only will be staged on Saturday the 20th of September in Birmingham, England. Although it will only be available on pay-per-view in the UK via Sky Sports, it appears as though it will be a show which exists in WWF canon, so more it will be more like SummerSlam 1992 and less like UK Rampage 92. A stacked card currently builds a double main event of the British Bulldog versus Shawn Michaels and a SummerSlam rematch between Bret Hart and The Undertaker, who is replacing Steve Austin. Promotional work will need to be halted due to the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, at the end of this month, but this should get underway in good time before the event itself. As well as Michaels going heel, there were many character alignment alterations on Raw this month as the WWF shake things up for their awesome programming. Ahmed Johnson was kicked out of the nation to be replaced by Rocky Maivere. In reality, Johnson is injured again and needs another six weeks off. He'll likely return as a babyface. Maivere slotted into his new heel role very comfortably. Vader also appeared to turn face when he snapped the Canadian flag in half after a match against Patriot. So the news for the month, Sergeant Slaughter is the new on-air WWF commissioner involving himself in virtually every segment shared on TV. More on that later in the show. As the WWF are currently way of approaching big-hitting WCW wrestlers due to their ongoing lawsuit from last year, their attempts at roster expansion this month have reportedly seen negotiations with the not exactly marquee names of Rick Martel, Ice Train and Jerry Lynn. Uh, at the moment, only the latter is signed for the company. And amusingly, finally for the month, the maybe not for the guy involved, the car that was actually owned by Jim Cornette has its windscreen smashed in by Karma during a parking lot brawl between the Nation and DOA on 18th of August. Currently unclear as to who will pay for the damage. I wonder, I do wonder. Uh, the ratings for the month and... It was reported as WWF making a bit of a ratings recovery, but with the raw numbers in front of me, I'm not sure I agree, but here we go. On the 4th of August, they polled, was listed as a 2.6, a WCW's 4.4. 4. 
On the 11th of August, the 2.9 against the 3.8. And the 18th of August, which is the final roar of the month, the 3.2 against the 4. There was no roar on the 25th of August, thanks to the US Open. Tennis tournament. SummerSlam, or The SummerSlam, if you're Bret Hart, took place on the 3rd of August this month. So we can go straight into it now. Bob, do you have the results there? I do. I will just quickly shunt in a plug for Patreon, just a reminder that for, for, for five bucks a month, if you'd like to say thank you for us contributing the highs and lows of wrestling from the mid to late 90s, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling20yrs and elsewhere. On to the... Uh, elsewhere. Links in the podcast description and on our website. On to the results of SummerSlam. The opening match, Mankind defeated Hunter Hearst Helmsley with China in a steel cage match. Not just defeated Marlena with Brian Pillman in a singles match. The Legion of Doom, Hawking Out, defeated the Godwins, Henry O and Phineas I. The British Bulldog retained his, his European Championship against Ken Shamrock by disqualification. Los Bariquas, the team of Savio Vega, Miguel Perez Jr., Jose Estrada Jr. and Jesus Castillo defeated the Disciples of Apocalypse, Crush, Chains, Eight Balls and Skull. Stone Cold Steve Austin defeated Owen Hart for the Intercontinental Championship. And the main event, refereed by Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart defeated The Undertaker to win the WWF World Heavyweight Championship. Craig, your opening thoughts on SummerSlam 97? Uh, it was somewhat of a mixed, a mixed bag. I, I, I don't think anything was uh, terribly stood out. And I think everything will just be completely remembered for the, the Owen Hart and Stone Cold. Uh, aspect that we mentioned earlier on, of course, the the incident involving Shawn Michaels uh, at the end of the title match sets up a storyline, so it might be too early to judge where that leads to. But uh, overall, I think uh, I think this was a very poor show, maybe two one out of five at best. We'll see, Bob. Big fan of Craig going with the early ratings on on a scale that we don't use. So that's a, that's an interesting <laughs> way to start. Um, I can't remember if it was at a five or at a ten. I apologise. It's you, not like you've been doing this show for four years, Craig. Is it? It's not like that at all. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, this was. I, I was a bit higher on this show than most people were. I mean, admittedly, like there's you know from from the second match to the the semi main, there's nothing here of note. But I wasn't offended by anything in that middle section. Um, although the the, uh, the eight man did get quite close. Um, and then yeah, like you know, it's it's very difficult to be overly critical of Austin and Owen Hart because they were on the way to having quite a good match, I think, and and that happened. And while I don't think the opener or the closer was were particularly great wrestling matches, I thought they both told quite compelling storylines. Um, yeah, I think I was. I don't think I'm going to call this a great show, but I think I was higher on the show than most. Interesting. From an in-ring perspective, I think this show pretty much stunk. To be perfectly honest. Uh, even the opener, which a lot of people seem to like, had its more than its fair share of problems. And whilst from a storyline perspective, I'm going to be waxing lyrical about the uh, the main event. That's more to do with the last two minutes rather than the preceding 26, but we'll get there. And obviously, nothing is more important in this show than what happened to Austin, but we'll get to that. But as much as I thought the matches that were provided were drab at best and downright awful at one or two, on one or two options worst... It felt like a major pay-per-view. It felt like SummerSlam should, which last year's did not. It brought together a lot of storylines which have been running on ever since the day after WrestleMania. It brought some of them to a close. It opened up some new ones. And as we said in the news, it brought things uh, together, tied things together quite nicely to see us into the next few months of WWF programming. So in that respect, I would say it was actually a bit of a success. 
Although from a wrestling perspective, I'm going to be charitable and say your mileage may vary. But we will get there when we get there. So, the SummerSlam, held at the Continental Airlines Arena in New Jersey, in front of a legit sellout of 20,000 fans. Uh, We opened with the National Anthem. We just get the National Anthem. No bells, no whistles, no run-ins, nothing like that. Just people singing their own National Anthem. Really, really nice stuff. Followed by the now customary and always excellent black and white video package. This one is under the theme, If Life Were Fair. If it were, then Brett would still be popular in America. The Undertaker would not be accused of being a murderer. And most importantly of all, Shawn Michaels would still be WWF champion. (laughs) We got there in the end. Vince, JR and King are on the call. And pretty much straight away, Helmsley's music kicks in. He emerges to pretty good heat. Mankind follows, gets a nice pop, but perhaps no more. We are off with our opener, which is a steel cage match between Mankind and Hunter Hurst-Helmsley. In a nice, realistic touch, as soon as the bell rings, Hunter makes a dive for the door. Because you would, wouldn't you? But Mankind drags him back in. He goes to work with some kicks. Hunter climbs the cage with no real transition, but he gets slammed down easily. The crowd comes to life when Mankind slugs Hunter with some punches and then hits a running knee in the corner, followed by the bang-bang. Stump pile driver and Hunter is down. Mankind then slaps on the claw, but China pulls Mankind's hair through the bars to break it up. Diving clothesline, Foley tries to climb out. He actually gets to the top of the cage early on, but China meets him with a ball shot. Helmsley recovers and superplexes him down to the canvas, as JR gets in his line about it looking like a pile-up on the I-95. Helmsley walks to the door, but in a touch of unrealism, doesn't exit. He goes back in to punish Mankind some more. I am sure that will not come back to haunt him. He rams Mankind into the cage a few times as the pace of the match radically shows. I'm just crowd-watching at this point, and there's our friend Vladimir. Hunter attempts to climb out, but Mick grabs his ankle. Hunter kicks him off, but Mankind just about recovers to grab him back in. In a rather awkward spot, they just stand by the ropes for no real reason for the sole situation where China can punch Mankind in the head. They really could have set that one up a bit better. The two exchange clotheslines, and then Hunter goes back to attack him with his knees, because that's what Hunter does. We then go get a really nice spot. Hunter goes for a suplex, Mankind reverses it, and Helmsley is then caught backwards from the top of a cage in what you would call, what you can best call, a super tree of woe. That could have looked really hokey, but it looked as natural as you can in that situation. Fair dues. Uh, a backdrop, and now Mankind hits the cage. They slug it out on the top rope, and both topple off. Balls first in the case of Helmsley, then gets his leg trapped on the rope. Mankind crawls for the door, but then China appears, and she rams the door man- into, he- into Mankind head first. Good God, that was sick. She then beats up Jim Corderas for good measure and then throws in a chair. Helmsley goes for a pedigree onto it, but Mankind reverses with a slingshot to the cage, which knocks China down to the guardrail. Big pop for that. Double arm DDT and Mankind woozily starts to climb. As this occurs, China then gets in the ring to try to drag Helmsley out, and then she just sort of stops. She actually came in a spot too early on that one. Mankind climbs all the way down to the bottom rung, but then decides to return to the top of the cage. The crowd know what's happening here as they start a chant of Superfly. Mankind then reveals a Jimmy Snooker heart tattoo. Well, sort of. It's kind of smudged. He didn't get his shirt all the way off, but never mind. The thought was there. He then, from the top of the cage, delivers a beautiful double axe smash. I think it was meant to be a splash. It wasn't, but what he did looked great. Rocked both competitors' bodies. 
Mankata goes back to the cage and he climbs out. Once more, China tries to pull Helmsley towards the door, at the right time this time. Mankind still gets to, the floor, gets to the floor first though, and he wins. He is spark out on the floor. We get a few bars of the standard Mankind victory music, but then it stops and the dude loves it, he kicks in. Foley's foot starts to tap. He then slowly gets to his feet, and then Dad dances his way to the back. Craig. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still chuckling at the dad dance reference. Uh, I, I quite enjoyed this. Uh, I thought there was uh, some nice spots in it. The, uh, the one you referenced about China absolutely smashing the door into uh, oh, was was pretty sick looking. And I thought I thought the, those guys really sold uh, a fence well, which which uh, sort of added a lot to this and made the sort of steel cage spots look pretty fantastic. As a minor gripe, I'm always annoyed by interference in, in uh, steel cage matches due to that being the reason that cage uh, is there in, in the first place. But at least for a change, China was interfering from the outside rather than there being run-ins, which, which I absolutely loathe. But as, uh, yeah, as an opening match goes, this is uh, pretty good. In terms of my rating, I gave it a, a solid 5 out of 10. I thought it was some good action here. It was a nice one to warm up the crowd. Uh, and these guys have had a, quite, a, quite an interesting programme, I would say. Uh, on Raw Lewis and King of the Rings. So, yeah, no, I, I like this. Back to the out of ten ratings. Bob? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, I, I, I'll start with the end. I, I don't know that after such a serious and hard-hitting match I would have finished with Mankind on the floor jiving to do Love's theme song. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a hell of a juxtaposition after a match that in theory was so serious. Um, there's also... Yeah, China running in at the wrong moment wasn't really ideal because you're like, nothing really happened and presumably Hunter just told her to piss off. Um, so she did and then they get the spot. I, I thought I thought Foley dropped an elbow, Rory. That was my instinct. It was kind of an elbow but he sort of came down just playing over in my head. He sort of he come down with double fists. Whatever it was, it looked great, I've got to say. Well, I was worried he was going to go on for a full-on splash, uh, and then I think his his knees might have exploded on landing. So I, I think there there was a little bit of a concern there. Otherwise, I thought this was a really good match. Um, you know, we, we take away the the Mankind match with Michaels last year. This was easily the best thing he's done in the WWF. It was easily Hunter's best match in the WWF, and I think I said that last month too. Um, this was a couple of steps up from that. Um, you know, and it it, it didn't. It didn't offer. It didn't flow very well. There are a couple of fuck spots. There are a couple of things that didn't make sense. Um, but there were enough big spots in here where I don't think it mattered. The crowd were. I thought were into it. I've seen some people say differently, but I, I was under the impression they were reacting to a lot of things. Um, one of the most impressive spots of the match was when China launched a chair from the floor over the top of the cage to to Hunter. It was such a good throw. It actually hit him on the bounce. She lobbed it over the top of the cage. It bounced in the middle of the ring and then hit him on the head. That was really good. Um, yeah, I thought this was quite a good match. Um, you know, told the right story, right guy won. Um, you know, not without its flaws, but uh, one of the better matches we'll see on WF Papers this year, I would say. Well, I probably agree with that, but uh, that's graded on the curve somewhat. I love the spots in this match. There were lots of them, and they were all never any less than extremely good all of which, the major ones, were extremely memorable. China utterly slammed that door 
on mankind's head when he tried to crawl out. And you could tell it hurt him so badly because he didn't even hold his head. He was actually holding his shoulder. That's, that is how painful it was. I was like, do you really have to take those risks, man? I know the blue bar cage isn't exactly safe for workers at the best of times, but my God. Uh, I think it says it all that all three of us, when we've been talking about this much, we picked out individual spots like that. Because this was, broadly speaking, a spot fest. As I said in my play-by-play, there didn't really feel much interconnection between any of the things we got. And in an opening match, you can kind of get away with that to a degree, especially when you've got a fairly hot feud when the crowd are into it anyway, which I agree, Bob, they certainly were from pretty much bell to bell. The reports to say the crowd were quiet, I just don't get that at all. Yet... I think that's one of the problems with Helmsley. He just goes from move to... Not that his moves are particularly interesting at the best of times when he doesn't have the bells and whistles of a cage match. He just goes from move to move with no real link or connection between them. And I think Mick was struggling to put a lot of things together here with that in context. It probably was his best WWF showing in the two years he's been there, Helmsley. Yet, But again, I still... I say this every single month. I just do not get it with this guy. Maybe now he'll be getting a new lease of life in whatever this is with Michaels. But... Uh, I still have my doubts. So yeah, the right guy absolutely won. I think we'll be talking about the final visual for a very long time. It played off the Mankind interviews from a couple of months ago, which they have been doing a lot. I think it's probably time to put those to bed now. I mean, I love those interviews. They'll be one of my highlights of the year, but we can't keep bringing up references to them over and over again. We've done it with Dude Love's existence. We've done it with the Superfly thing. Let Mankind or Dude Love stand on his own two feet. And in that respect, Craig, just quickly... Should Mick Foley now just pick a character and stick with it? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, it is quite interesting. You don't sort of know uh, what one you're going to get, and I suppose that could uh, could make for something interesting in itself. But it is sort of a lot. It does have a sort of scattergun all over the place. It's almost like they don't really know what to do with them, so they're just doing lots of things until something sticks. But yeah, I, th- I think sort of that this. It's probably one of the, the better Mankind things for me since his debut, so if anything, this could perhaps cement the, the Mankind role on, on TV going forward, I would think. Bob, quick thoughts on that? Um, I, I still think his best gimmick is Cactus Jack, um, and that's the one they're, they're least likely to use. Um, yeah, do love, they, they gave me an extended interview on Raw Let this month, like that came across as a, a parody of a parody. Um, I don't think that's got any legs, and you know, I don't. Yeah, like I, Mick Foley's best form was Cactus Jack, and they haven't found it with Mankind, and I don't think they're going to find it with Dude Love either. Yeah, the Dude Love interview just existed so he could quote "I am the Walrus" by the Beatles. You know, <laughs> the only reason that was there doesn't matter if it's out of tune because it was out of tune. But he's cool, or trying to be cool. Yeah, all I will say about Cactus Jack is that Jr. has been name dropping him on commentary once or twice. But I'm with you. It's either Mankind or Dude Love. I would pick the former. Maybe for quote unquote special occasions, you bring up Dude Love, but as much as I, lo- I love the, the fact he can switch between two characters so seamlessly, it goes back to what you said earlier, Bob. This was a serious. I mean, you can't, there's, there's, there's nothing seamless about that. There's nothing seamless about that switch. I mean, maybe you're worried about between segments, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah, just for me, like, I, I don't think there's money in either one of them. Um, yeah, I, I'd, but my inclination would be to try and evolve the Mankind character into Cactus Jack and it's not by name. I like, do love to me, it's just a, you know, it's just a dead horse, but that would be my inclination. That's fair enough. I, I've said before, I love the way that Mick Foley plays the Dude Love character. I said that last month because I just think Mick Foley is 
ridiculously talented at virtually everything he turns his hat to. I've said before on his show, he's almost too good for professional wrestling. But the rest of the world's loss is very much our gain. But for me, Mankind is the character. There are still places you could go, but let's stop mining the interviews, as great as they were. Let's come up with something else for you. Fun match, not without its problems, but uh, a solid opener, I thought, and the right guy definitely won. Moving on, here is Todd Pettigill to introduce somebody called Governor Christine Whitman. She's accompanied by Gorilla Monsoon and the Headbangers. She's a politician at a wrestling, wrestling show, so she gets booed. Apparently she was instrumental in getting rid of some wrestling tax in New Jersey or something like that. I am amazed that Vince McMahon would be happy with taxes being lowered. <laughs> Gorilla Monsoon presents her with a replica WWF title belt. She then actually cuts the standard, if anyone wants this belt, they will have to take it off me promo. And she does a better job of it than 80% of the roster could do on their best day. <laughs> yeah, it, it's the old Diana Smith question, like, you know, is she a better promo than Bulldog? Like, yeah, this was really coherent. Um, and and my, my favourite part as well was probably they said, she's the tax crusher. I'm like, shit, if this was three years ago, that'd be a gimmick for somebody. That'd be like the, that'd be the IRS opponent they never had. Um, but yeah, like a bit weird, you know, them celebrating politicians. The crowd don't really know how to react, but you're meant to boo them because that's what you do. Um, but yeah, surprisingly coherent. And she got the, the title belt hold up right. That was fine too. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I suggest that the two non-wrestling segments on this show are probably uh, two of the most memorable. Um, Craig, Christine Whitman, promo of the year. It's, it's got to be up there. It is a sort of odd platform for her to be standing on as a Republican governor cutting taxes, but hey, it's WWF, isn't it? Which explains why the headbangers were there, by actually not explaining <laughs> why the headbangers were there at all. I don't think there's ever an explanation for the headbangers being anywhere. More from them in a second. I know, you're excited, aren't you? The camera points out Tiger Jeet Singh and his son Ali, the latter will be back in action soon. I can't wait. Uh, we then get footage of a, beast, of a beach party which took place in the parking lot earlier. Nothing to really discuss here apart from A, the headbangers turning up again, and B, confusing crowd surfing with moshing. Because Vince McMahon. It's match time. Match two, Goldust versus Brian Pillman. One of our many stipulations here on tonight's show. If Pillman loses, he has to wear a dress in the ring. On Raw. Pillman jumps from behind as Goldust helps Marlena out of the ring. Punches and chops in the corner. Goldust with a back elbow and eight punches by the turnbuckle. Goldust kisses him, but Pillman repairs to the outside. He comes back in with standard heel offence and goes after Marlena. Goldust hides, Goldust hides down by the apron and cuts him off with a clothesline. Suplex by Pillman, then he goes to the top rope. Goldust catches him. He tries to dump him off and crotch him, but the timing looks off and Pillman just sort of slumps to the outside. He uses Marlena as a shield and gets in a punch. Diving closed up by Pillman gets a two count. And now we hit the chin lock. Once again, I'm crowd watching, and there's ECW hat guy and the bloke next to him who looks like Des Lynham. Those two are joined at the hip or something, aren't they? Goldust eventually gets up and executes a quick backslide for two. Another diving close and then we get a slap battle, although Dustin is clearly pulling his strikes here for whatever reason. He goes for a bulldog in true Dustin Rhodes fashion, but Pillman shoves him through the ropes. Now we get our finishing sequence, if you can call it that. Goldust flops in with a terrible sunset flip. Him and Pillman were barely even in the same postcode as that one. Goldust didn't roll through. Pillman didn't drop. Looked appalling. 
So they then spend 15 seconds awkwardly shimmying back towards the ropes in whatever position they're in. So Marlena can then slug Pillman with her purse, allowing Goldust to get the pin. Marlena rolls in a mannequin with a dress on it, and Pillman destroys both. Well, that just fell apart more than the mannequin did. Bob? Well, fair play if you get a Des Lyman reference in. I wouldn't have called that. Um, yeah, these two were a bit more over last month. Um, it's funny, that, isn't it? It's almost like last month was uh, where you get Team A against Team B. Everyone kind of stays over, and then you, you take it to New York, and everything kind of falls apart a bit. Um yeah, this was where the show's flattened out for a little while. Um, that you know, not a lot of heat. Um, Pillman deserves better. Goldust is you know really flat. Um, you know, he's just you know he, he's just the the charismatic void of, of Dusty Rhodes. Feels like it. Um, and then yeah, you take a bad match for a stipulation people don't care about. Pillman is a guy that character-wise has it down, but hasn't really worked out how to convert it into money in the ring. Um, you know, obviously he's got his ankle problems that I'm still not convinced he's fully healed from. Um, and then, fucking hell, that finish. Um, you know, it, it, it's difficult. Like, if it wasn't the finish, you could have just got them back up and carried on. But because it was the finishing sequence, they kind of just had to work around it. Um, but yeah, like, gold just kind of overshot and then Pillman landed on him and then they were like well we've got no momentum here and then we're in the wrong place and they they did a reasonable job covering it up but a, a shit finish for an opportunity good match that guy really does look like Des Lynham Des Lynham in sunglasses if you can imagine that <laughs> Craig uh, I'm guessing with Bob using the phrase fucking hell and shit that we're not going for a PG uh, episode here uh, it's difficult to Disagree with analysis here. It's it's crazy when we see some of the stuff that we watched uh, back in the day of uh, Pillman for for this show. Uh, seeing sort of stuff with Justin Ryder in uh, WCW to sort of see where he is now, and it's just a sort of shell of himself. Yeah, he's got his ankle problems, but expecting him to really to have an, an eight minute near eight minute match that is anything other than pretty poor, uh, especially with Goldust, is uh, is alarming. This was dreadful. I mean, an eight-minute match of Pillman just punching and kicking isn't going to be that exciting. And yeah, the stipulation, who really cares? It's, yeah, nothing nothing here of, of any real sort of note that you would want to go back and watch again, I wouldn't say. Just imagine if this place, if this match took place four years ago, when Goldust, Dustin Rose, I should say, was in his... Up a mid card, up and up and babyface roll. It, it probably did if we look hard enough. I would not be surprised if it uh, maybe even took place on a, a Saturday night or a pro or something like that. If if so, if somebody wants to send me the tape, they know where to find me because this was this was not good. It was four years later than that in every way, shape, or form. I'm just not with Goldust, Dustin Rhodes, whatever you want to call him, as a babyface at all. He doesn't really do anything as a face. And Pillman, I think this is probably Pillman's best in-ring performance since he, he got back into the ring back in early May time. But that, again, is not saying very much. I mean, his first match, the tag team match, when he teamed up with the Anvil against LOD on Raw, that was dreadful. His match with Austin wasn't much. He looked okay with a couple of his basic signature manoeuvres here, but Craig, absolutely right. He's toned himself down dramatically. And his ankle injuries, they're still, I think they're there for all to see. He struggles really walking around the ring at times. And uh, it's really painful. It's really, really sad to see somebody of his immense talent who was 
so so good in the ring even less than two years ago. He was tearing it up towards uh, late summer, early autumn at WCW 95, and he is absolutely a shell of himself. Nobody cares about this feud at the moment, but the finish, I, I presume the planned finish, although it took him a very long time to get there, was Marlena hitting Perma with her purse, but that was rather heelish, I think, for a situation where Goldust and Marlene have been played as the ultimate babyfaces in this. Again, if you really want to get particularly inside, you can link it to the fact that Pillman and Terry Runnels used to date before Dustin came along when she was uh, working in makeup in WCW. I think they dated even before she became Alexandra York on screen. So there is that, but either you know that or you don't. That, at this point, nothing like that had been played up on TV. It might well be for the rematch, which is coming back at the next pay-per-view. But yeah, I can't excuse... I cannot excuse the finish. I think, Bob, I disagree with you. I think they made a terrible job of covering for it. Crawling awkwardly, knees first and shoulders first, just to get back to the apron. They should have just gone with something else. They stood up, Goldust hit his finisher, Pillman's foot under the rope if you want to get a rematch or something like that. They really should have known better. And Pillman wearing a dress, that's real cheesy 70s territory stuff. He carried it off pretty well throughout the month, but I don't want to see it. Nobody wants to see it. And this was a mess from two people who, they deserve better, but they did themselves no favours getting there. The Godwins versus the Legion of Doom, as the hits just keep on coming. The Godwins come out carrying the Confederate flags with them, of all things. The crowd don't react to that. I'm quite pleased to say that, really. Legion of Doom get a strong reaction. After a stare down, the LOD take control early. The Godwins bail and regroup. We reset with Animal in, and he takes both the Godwins down. He tags in Hawk. Henry goes for a leg drop and misses. We roll outside, and Hawk sends him into the steps and then chops him back in. Hawk with two leg drops for a two count. Phineas in with his god-awful offense. He goes for the hangman. For a few seconds, Vince scores at a chokehold. Uh, Animal and Henry in, and nothing is really happening. Double clothesline, both guys are out in front of dear old Captain Lou Albano, who is still mad as a box of frogs. Back in again with no real link. Henry hits a body slam for two. And Phineas then tags in and locks in a bear hug. Hannibal gets out, but he still takes the heat. Henry with a dreadful boss man attack, and then Hawk gets what is supposed to be a hot tag. It gives Henry a neck breaker as a callback to the hog's uh, broken neck a few months ago, but Pig breaks up the pin. He gets dumped off with the LOD go for the Doomsday device. Pig stops that, but he gets clotheslined. The LOD then hit Henry with a spike pile driver which is good for the mercifully quick three count. Craig, take it, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if, I can, if I can just get a couple of seconds of positivity out of the way before we pile into this match, there is an argument that the neckbreaker and the spiked pile driver is probably the most psychology we've ever seen in a wrestling match featuring the Legion of Doom. Would anyone agree with that? What was in the actually strong two moves together that make sense in consecutive order? Uh, from a storyline perspective as well, based on the previous neck break? Well, yeah, absolutely. And of course, as we know, Hawk doesn't have a neck. The amount of times I heard JR and WCW cover for his nose standing by, my oh, God, look at those neck muscles. <laughs> so yeah, nice callback to that too. Uh, but yeah, no, this was, this was awful. I mean, really it was as awful as you'd expect it to be because you're not really going to get a standout match between the Godwins and the Legion of Doom but it, it didn't even meet those low, low, low expectations this was horrible, 
absolutely horrible. After a decent start, we really went into the shits on this event. Bob, I didn't hate it. Um, I, I don't know whether I don't know what that makes me, but I, like you know, it was it was it wasn't great. Um, but I was like, I I went in with expectations so low, I was quite impressed. Like I expected zero from both of these teams. I'm like, ah, that was all right. The finish, man, clean finish, didn't fuck around. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. Like, I went in expecting, like, half out of ten, and I got, like, two out of ten. I thought that was quite good in that respect. Yeah, you take what you can in this game, don't you? Um, I think you're right first time on your, your grading there, Bob. The only... I made notes during this match. I read them back here, as you just heard. But I cannot remember anything that I've written down. The only thing I can remember was the Godwins bringing the Confederate flag with them, for fuck's sake. And that spike pile driver ending. I could have just gone from sentence one to the final sentence of my paragraph and I wouldn't have missed anything out. It was just... The amount of times I've written down here just reading through the, written the word nothing, I think that speaks volumes. I don't care about this feud. I don't care about these guys. I should care about the Legion of Doom, but I just don't. I didn't care about them five years ago watching old NWA stuff in the 80s. I didn't care about them then. The LOD are 10% booking and 90% an intro music of Iron Man. If you don't have those two things, then they're nothing at all. The Godwins, I just want to go away. I didn't care about them as baby faces. I care about them even less as heels. Yes, we got some minor psychology at the end, but this was fucking awful. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to see if we can't give away one million dollars. Now I want to introduce you to our first winner. This gentleman was called during Raw. Please welcome 12-year-old Ryan Chaddock from Liverpool, New York, right here. <laughs> How you doing, Ryan? Awesome. Do you have a, a special number all picked out? Yep. All right, why don't you tell us that number right now? 52. Number 52. Key number 52. Go over to the board and pick that key and then stand by, okay? Now, ladies and gentlemen, our second winner, he's here all the way from Lafayette, Indiana. Please welcome Mr. Patrick Stevenson. I think he's just stone cold. Looking a little what? bit like stone cold there. That's uh, what the look was supposed to be for, but I've had it for more than just this event. Well, that's good. Do you have a uh, number all picked out? Yeah. All 13. right, what's your number? 13. Lucky number 13. Let's hope it's lucky for you. What an idiot. What do you mean? All right, now, 13. folks, what we're going to do is we're going to call... Two more people right now. We have a list here. If you send in all of your clues, you're eligible anywhere in North America. We're going to make the call right now, so get off your phone if you're talking on it. You shouldn't be on it. Look at that guy's all ears. Right, let me pick man. up the phone here. Let's do it, Todd. Let's call somebody and make them a winner. We have a, there we go. Okay, ready? Show that ball hit Gotta be home. again. Picking up some cable with those. Let's see. Cable. A chance to win a million dollars. Nobody's home. What? Look at Pettengill. Is your phone ringing right now? Pick it up because we're calling you. Going to give you one more ring. Nobody home. Nobody home. Nobody home. They oh just lost God. a chance at a million dollars. All right, we're going to go to the next name on the list. <laughs> All right, here we go. Don't show them. Yeah, show them. Don't, don't. You want to hold that a little lower? 
No, no, stop. Why does Pettengill get all the good jobs? What do you mean you get to sit I out here I just need to get a little closer. JR and myself. How about me, Jersey? Woo! Oh. All right. Now, is your phone ringing? The number no. you have reached is 434. It's been disconnected. Four, zero, four, zero. All right. We're going to We're gonna keep trying. We're going to keep going. All right. Here we go. King, is that your cellular phone out here ringing? I think that was my answering Gotta machine. Hang up. Give me another dial tone. Sonny, how am I supposed to dial... We know that uh, Mr. Pettengill will not be uh, a fast dialing specialist of any kind. We should have got somebody smarter to do this, like an eggplant or something. Uh, I got the number already. Oh, is your phone ringing? Come on. <laughs> Come on. We're calling you. Hello? Hello, is hey. Michael home? Moment. Just a moment. He's coming. He's coming? Yeah, oh, yeah he's coming. Let me see who we're calling here. Hello? Michael! Yeah. This is Todd, Sonny, Sable. Hi, we're calling. Are you watching SummerSlam right now? Oh, uh, no, sir, I'm not. Oh, uh, well, guess what? <laughs> What's that? It's all right! It's not it's all right! Watching. He's going to be watching! You, my, you got all the clues. My cable company don't carry it. Oh, yeah, cable company needs a good kick in the... All right. That's all right. You can still win. You get a shot at a million dollars, okay? Are you serious? What I want, yeah, absolutely. What I want you to do is pick a number between one and a hundred for a lucky key, and Sonny's going to try it for you. Give me a number between one and one hundred. Thirty-three. Thirty-three? Yes. Sonny, grab number thirty-three, and we're going to try it. Let's do it, Sonny. Let me have a big drum roll, please. For a chance at one million dollars, Sonny, try that key. Michael Simmons, this could be your chance. Here we go. Do it, Sonny. The key's in. Oh. Sorry, Michael, but you, you had a shot there. It's $5,000 savings bond anyhow. All right, go to what? a neighbor's house and get somebody's television with SummerSlam. We'll see you. Okay. Goodbye. All right. Now, Sable, we're going to do one more. So would you hold this for me? Just a little lower. There you go. That's going to be perfect. Stop wiggling him. No, not the paper. Pettengill didn't even tell that guy he won 5000 bucks just for answering the phone. Savings bond. Beautiful. $5,000. Stop wiggling. Uh, we are Here we go. Here we go. A chance at a million dollars. If your phone's ringing right now. Come on. Hello? Rebecca. Yes. It's Todd Pettengill from the World Wrestling Federation with Sable. How are you? I'm great. Guess what? What? We're going to give you a chance to win one million dollars. I can't believe it. Oh, my gosh. All you have to do is give me a number between 1 and 100 for a key that could open this coffin worth 1 million bucks inside. Even if you don't win, you get a $5,000 U.S. savings bond. What's Ooh, your number? 14. 14? All right, Sable. Let's try number 14. 
calling Rebecca Cohen in Manchester, Missouri. There's the drum roll, Sable. Will this be the key? A chance at one million dollars? No, it's not going to open. Rebecca, as we said, a $5,000 U.S. savings bond just for answering your phone. Thank you. Thank you. Right, Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ryan Shaddock. All right, Ryan. Your chances just got better. Step on over there. Drum roll, please. Put your key in there and try to open up that casket. Come on, Ryan. He's a nervous wreck. Come on, Ryan. Turn it. Is it going to open? No. Whole That's life right. is ruined. Stop it is not. That's worth a million bucks. Hey, well, almost. You might not know it yet, but that's better than a million bucks. What is not fucking awful is what we have next. And I know, Bob, you've been looking forward to this one specifically. Here is Todd Pettengill with Sonny and Sable. Some kid called Ryan Chaddick tells us his special number is 52. Some bold bloke called Patrick Stevenson gets a massage from Sonny, telling us his lucky number is 13. I feel at this point I should actually tell you what's going on here. (laughs) In case you're wondering that you've stumbled on some other cable channel. No, this is the Million Dollar Challenge. If you've been watching Raw through July, viewers have had a chance to win a million dollars by guessing for insultingly easy clues on Raw. Basically, we had four video package vignettes presented by some bearded bloke in a smoking jacket in which he would give us clues, i.e. the clues were him reading out a word. You had to phone up, phone up, phone up the hotline, say those, say those words, and if you got that, you had a chance of winning the money. Two people got an invitation to the event, the ones I've talked about earlier, and the others have their phone numbers on a list. Todd Pettigill phones up an entrance, who apparently does not answer her phone, so we are off to a roaring stop. He then dials number two. Sonny is holding up the numbers in front of him, so you can guess what she's doing with them, and... <laughs> You can guess the distraction there. Todd dials another number. Then we get the old dee dee dee. The number you have dialed cannot be recognised. <laughs> so we really are flying by the seat of our pants on this one. Todd, the third time's the charm. Have a go. <laughs> yep, he gets an answer from a bloke called Michael, who is not even watching SummerSlam. <laughs> Lucky him. <laughs> his cable company. His cable company doesn't carry it, but as you say, Craig, they might be doing him a favour on this one. However, as they've got through to him to try to save this segment, he can still win a million dollars. He chooses number 33. Sonny takes number 33 and takes key number 33 off the wall behind them, and she goes to open the coffin. Because when you think coffins, you think a million dollars. She tries to open it, but no dice. Sorry, Michael, go back to watching your black screen. Todd rings another number, and this time he gets through to somebody called Rebecca. She's actually watching SummerSlam. Poor love. She picks number 14, and again, that isn't good enough. She does, however, get a $5,000 savings bond. I'm not sure what that is. Is that a premium bond over here? Anybody know? Sounds really fucking dodgy, doesn't it? Sounds like some kind of pyramid scheme, you know, I don't know what, but yeah. It's like... Vince talks about uh, Rick Rude setting up his own protection racket a bit later on. I do wonder what this is. I know that premium bonds are the prize they give away for people who uh, choose the top three for goal of the month on match of the day. And that is our second deadline of reference of the day. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, a $5,000 savings bond, yeah, safely moving on. Now it's little Ryan's turn. He's got his key. I'm not sure what his number was. He doesn't actually open the box. 
He actually starts crying, but then Sable gives what I can only call the booby hug, which Todd Pettigrew calls better than a million dollars. Yeah, look yeah, like you've experienced that, mate. Come on, Patrick, you can do this. You've got number 13. Nope, no luck. The coffin doesn't open. Some suited bloke called Norm is stood by the, by, by the side of the this Firago and tells us that it was number three. It's always number three. He opens it and there's a million dollars. Sonny strokes the million dollars. As we realise, nobody's won. Everyone's a loser. I feel like a loser. (laughs) (laughs) Glean some sort of Turek victory from the last five minutes, if you would, please. Oh, I I, I think we've we've just stumbled across the reason why I enjoyed the show so much. Um, (laughs) This is a special segment. Like, where to begin with this? So, I mean, yeah, they've been chasing up this million-dollar giveaway. And it gets to the thing, and it's like, there's a hundred keys. I'm thinking, shit, we could be here a while. Um, you know, and so, like, yeah, they have the bit with the two guys picking the keys, and then they go for the phones. Um, and, and, yeah, as you kind of say, like, they dial the first number, no one picks up. Second number, error. Third number, oh, hi, oh, yeah, I'm not watching the show. Vince McMahon is pissing himself throughout this entire thing. And I'm like, Vince, you know this is on you, right? I know he, I know he thinks it's a big rib on Pettingill, and in some ways it is. But Vince is really enjoying this. And so they get through the two people on the line, they, you know, they, they try and lock the thing, and it's not there. And they go to the two contestants they brought along. The kid puts the key in the lock, it doesn't work. He gets the hug from Sable. Todd Pettengill says the funniest thing he's ever said. Just says, you might not know it yet, but that's better than a million bucks, which is like far funnier than anything Todd Pettengill's ever done. And the other guy tries his key, and that doesn't work. And that's it. And, you know, they've been taking this million-dollar giveaway for weeks with no intention of actually giving... When has that happened before? Has anyone ever seen a TV thing like this, like a prize, a competition, not like a game show, like a competition-type thing, where the odds of them giving away the money was 1 in 25? There was a a 94, 96% chance that they didn't have to give away a million dollars, and they never did. Unbelievable. This is, like, almost so bad it's good. This is, like, almost Miss NWO level, but it's so much more funny it saved itself. And as far as I know, not a great inspector in sight this time. (laughs) Craig? I I really like the idea that Vince McMahon in 1997 thought it might be a good idea to give someone a million pounds as... Raw was on its knees, company was on its arse, but, uh, yeah, I mean... Well, that's the point, he didn't. I don't know, no, I, I don't, but just, the, the whole thing is completely stupid. Uh, again, Todd Pettengill's line is really funny, uh, it, but it just seemed quite quite pointless. To be honest, if they, if they did want to give away a million dollars and wanted to make this segment longer, they could have arguably scrapped the previous two matches, but yeah, no, throwaway stuff, I'm, I'm, I'm in incre- Crazy, off-the-wall impressed by Rory doing a play-by-play, blow-by-blow of this, which is just, just special, mate. Just really, really special. Uh, but that, that's probably, in fact, yeah, that's the most entertaining thing of this whole segment, Rory's play-by-play. Take it out what you will. Thank you very much. If ever a situation deserved the phrase going above and beyond the call of duty, it was writing down a play-by-play for the million-dollar challenge, I can tell you. 
I am not going to try and pick this one apart anymore, because <laughs> you two have done a, a sterling job of doing so. But all I'll say is, Vince McMahon potentially, potentially left himself open to giving away one year's worth of Ken Shamrock's salary. <laughs> so just think about that. I cannot believe I'm going to say this, but this segment is a must-watch. To, to extend on Bob's point, it's so bad, it's so bad, it's good. <laughs> it, it's probably the most must-watch thing on the show. I mean, there's some good stuff on this show. But, like, it's pro- yeah, all right, it's the Austin injury, but it's probably the most memorable thing on the entire show. I will live out my three score and ten without seeing a moment as unintentionally hilarious as Todd Pettengill corpsing before the camera, slamming down the receiver, shouting, It's been disconnected! <laughs> what else? This is that. This man enjoyed this far too much for someone that owns the company that ran this sham. Like, it's also like he set the whole thing up just as a big rib on Pettengill. That's the only explanation I can come up with. That would not surprise me. We know Vince McMahon's humour is based on humiliation. And I shouldn't really say this, but if you're going to pick anybody to humiliate, Todd Pettengill, he's going to be high up on your list. So, yes, I feel guilty for almost moving on after this now, but uh, we still got about another two hours in the show. Uh, I've actually written on my notes, back to the ring, boo. So, there you go. But uh, being the professionals that we are, we must now talk about British Bulldog versus Ken Shamrock. And there's a stipulation here as well, because, of course, there is. If Bulldog loses, he must eat a tin of dog food. Yeah, whatever. Ken strides purposefully to the ring, and he goes to work straight away. Belly-to-belly throw, not a suplex, then we're outside for a few shots. Uh, back in the ring, Ken goes for the ankle lock, but Davy Boy grabs the rope. Clothesline gets two. They meander around for a bit until Bulldog takes control with a clothesline of his own. Vertical suplex gets a two count. Bulldog hits the chin lock very, very early. Sunset flip by Ken for two, and now another chin lock. Too early for that again. Crowd have gone. Inside cradle for two is Jerry Lawler quotes Churchill. What the fuck is happening here? <laughs> Shamrock gets puts in yet another chin lock. That's three in the first three minutes. And then gets thrown into the post. Another Irish whip to the steps. I feel like we've seen that spot millions of times today already. Uh, Ken recovers with chops and kicks until Bulldog hits a low blow. I'm pretty sure that Davy Boy was meant to suplex Ken onto the steps, but... Um, I'm not sure he called it properly or they just slipped because both men just fall down to the floor. Uh, ghastly. Back in the ring when they cover for that with a chin lock. Shamrock is dumped to the outside again and this match just has not got started. Davy Boy rubs the dog food in Ken's face and then Shamrock goes mental. He lets out a troll yell and starts laying in kicks. He grabs the, kin- uh, he grabs the tin of dog food Belts Bulldog with it, and that is a DQ. He locks on a chokehold on Davy in the ring for a pretty long time before officials come in to try to drag him off. But Shamrock has not been calmed down, as he proceeds to give belly to bellies to Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, Jack Doan, and Mike Kyoto. He then screams, get out of my way, and now the crowd are with him. They loved that. Maybe, just maybe, they found a niche for Ken after all. Craig. I laughed at your troll yell remark. Uh, this is becoming a bit of a love in between me and you. Uh, Easy, big fella. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the warm weather. Uh, the, I think the only thing worse than this match would have been a sort of 
series of promos between the two talking about this match. This was just really rubbish. It was the Bulldogs just sort of dying on his arse here, and Ken Shamrock isn't really established yet. The, the, the only slight positive here is at the end when it, it succeeds in getting Ken Shamrock over as being a little bit fucking mental. But other than that, I, there's nothing really here. I, another really stupid stipulation. Yeah, it's boring and yeah. I, I want to like Shamrock, but I just can't yet. Oh. Yeah, I got as far as to writing down the line. It's clear Shamrock is up a mid-card. They missed an opportunity to present him as a real star. And this was about two-thirds of the way through the match. And then we got the end, and it's like, well, the plane's been in a bit of a dive, but maybe they can just about pull it out. I mean, yeah, presenting Shamrock as being a bit fucking mental was probably always the best way to present him. Um you know, and they finally worked out, hmm, maybe if we give a submission specialist a lot of submission-based moves, that might help get him over three months after he arrives. We're having a lot of like, more matches. Was it February he arrived, Rory? Yep, February. Uh, on uh, the ECW oh. rule, actually, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, because he, he, he special guest ref the uh, Austin Michaels match for WrestleMania. So, yeah, he's been around about six months now. Um, uh, Austin, probably... the Austin Brett match. What did I say? Austin Michaels. Right. Yes, Austin and Brett. Um, yeah, um, and, and and they finally worked out, well, you know, for a guy with a lot of submissions, maybe we start letting him use them, he might start getting over. Um, the match was trash. I mean, Bulldog, you know, Bulldog's a bit of a weird one. Like, he's, you know, apparently he's slimmed down a bit to take some pressure off his knees, so he kind of looks a bit ill at the moment, which doesn't really help. Um, Shamrock's a guy who just... Yeah, just hasn't been able to transition to wrestling all that brilliantly. Like, he's had some sparks, but never really consistently transitioned to character. They haven't presented him very well either, which doesn't make any sense. And they're just presenting Sherlock as a mid-carder. Wins sometimes, he loses sometimes. Like, you know, he's just there. He's a guy we can shoehorn in. Um, but he could mean a lot more. Maybe they've started to make that work with this angle, but I, I, I remain unconvinced. But the match was was unremarkable. Nothing of note. Uh, I thought the match was trash. Uh, I counted five chin locks in the eight minutes it was given. That's just inexcusable. I get the impression that... Go on. Uh, what I was going to say is that I, I think that uh, Shamrock's very green, and I don't think someone like the Bulldog is the sort of guy that's really going to help someone as uh, fresh as Shamrock is to, to a good match so whilst I take that criticism on, on board and it, it's absolutely right because it did make it very boring I'm not entirely convinced that there's much else a Bulldog can do Bulldog is definitely one of those guys who's only as good as his opponent or only as good as his opponent can be he'll raise his game against better guys against guys who are on his level or below then the results can be pretty bleak and Shamrock just isn't there. I, if, if, in all fairness to Shamrock, I think his performances on the Raws after the start of August are actually quite good. But um, I still don't think he's, he's snapped into any sort, of, uh, any sort of rhythm yet after that match against Vader. So there's nothing to talk about with the match. It was just a chinlock fest and a very badly botched, botched suplex. It was, uh, it was mm. absolute rubbish. And there's no way in hell that there'll be any other result than Bulldog sneaking out some sort of win. He's not going to eat a tin of dog food, for goodness sake. Yeah, they might just have salvaged something at the very end. The crowd were into Shamrock going crazy. That visual there of him laying waste to officials, the bodies strewn around him, and him screaming, get out of my way with blood 
blood pouring from his mouth. That's where they need to go with Shamrock. They need to let him cut loose as much as he possibly can without legitimately hurting somebody like he did back in May. I should note as well, uh, Shamrock bleeding from the mouth. He didn't get, it wasn't like a, a bash in his lip or anything like that. Apparently his kidneys actually got bruised during the match and that's where the blood came from. Um, I'm not sure what particular spot in the match caused it, but uh, that was the result there. So, fair, fair fox for getting through that one. And he looked like a bit of a monster towards the end. And do, do you think he locked, locked in that sleeper a little bit tighter post-match? Think he may, may let, let it in a little bit more? Maybe, yeah. When they said Davey, uh, Davey was turning blue, they weren't wrong, were they? That might have been a quick-fire receipt on that one. Now you mention it, Bob, yeah. So, yeah. There are places you can go with Shamrock if you square the circle between letting him really fire things up and and tone it down, if that makes any sense. The Bulldog just was not in the mood today for whatever reason, and we got a rubbish match with a nice visual at the end. A bit more Todd Pettingill for you now. He's backstage, not with Sable, but with a zebra-shirted, zebra-shirted HBK. HBK tells us there is nothing between him and Brett because he already settled everything with him at WrestleMania last year. He will be impartial and unbiased and nothing will get past his keen eye. Vince calls our following match a 10-man tag team match. Sadly, there's only eight of these losers. The Lost Bariquas versus the DOA. Vince, with a double whammy, then goes on to call the Lost Bariquas exciting. Nope. We start with all eight men in the ring and the DOA get the better of that exchange. Jose and Skull, I think, are in for a whole load of nothing. Eight ball hits a sidewalk slam. Crush with a back elbow. Miguel in with a backbreaker. Jesus, if that's his name, gets a few elbows from change. Savio hits his one decent move, the over-the-top rope spin quick, and now the Bariquas assume control. That it all be on Skull or 8-Ball or someone for a bit. Here come the nation through the crowd. Jesus hits a rocker dropper on somebody. Nobody cares. More quadruple teaming by the Bariquas in the corner on somebody. Nobody cares. Another winner from Vince is he gets his Tony Schiavone on by saying that the nation have come down to get a bird's eye view. Stop saying that. How is it a bird's eye view when you stood by the eight? Oh, God. More quadruple teaming in the corner and this match is Is bird's eye just different in the US? Like, is birds just from like a perch position on the ground? Because Tony Schiavone's made that error before. I'm pretty sure that birds fly anywhere in the world. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we, 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 we might need one of our friends across the water to chip in at some point and I tell you if, if it's a bird on the ground that is a bird's eye view anything can be a bird's eye view right yes yeah I mean I, I don't, technically it's not wrong technically it's not wrong it's not as, as I would understand it I think we're going to need some assistance here on this one because I, I, I'd rather get the impression we're going to be coming back to this one many many months and years to come so uh <laughs> <laughs> So if, uh, if, if Eric or Brian are listening to this one, get in touch quick, guys, and <laughs> put us right. Anyway, a bird's eye view. Rubbish. More quadruple teaming in the corner, and this is a total shower of a match. Savio misses a corner splash and changes back in. He goes after everybody, and then once again, all eight men are back in the ring. Change slugs Ahmed, who responds by giving him a power of a plunge on the outside. Savio rolls change in, and Miguel drops an elbow for the win. Pitiful. The Nation and the DOA scrap in the R-way for a bit until Crush clears the gangway with his Harley. Over to you, Bob. 
Yeah, stuff involving the DOA and the Barikas that involves Jim Cornette's windshield getting smashed in, <laughs> or windscreen, I should say, uh, is good. Uh, actual matches, not so good. Turns out, really boring. Um, it's, well, you just let them slug it out and just have organized, unorganised chaos. It's somewhat compelling, but when you actually say, let's have a match, not so good. Um, and then, yes, basically the, the Ahmed Johnson power of a plunge, not quite power of a plunge, more like a power bomb that he fucked up and probably injured himself again on the concrete, was the low light of a very low match. This was the bottom of the show. It was indeed. And speaking of bottom, that is how Ahmed delivered that PRP. He got it completely wrong. He just drops flat to his arse. Change was nowhere near the ground. And yes, that probably screwed Ahmed up yet again. Surprise, surprise. Craig? Uh, the WWF really loves the gang war stuff, don't they? But the fans really just don't. I mean, Los Bricos seem alright in terms of the, the guys that make up the group seem to be passable in-ring workers. I mean, I'm not saying any of these guys are main eventers, but I'm saying that they're not terrible. Disciples of Apocalypse, they're terrible. Uh, and you, you, you're sitting through this match, and at, at one point I wrote down... It's really difficult to remain interested in this one, as nothing much seems to be happening. And that was even when the Nation of Domination were there. So you've got three groups of four guys, and it just means absolutely fuck all. I mean, if, if you want, I don't know. I, I don't think this is savable. I think this is rubbish. I don't think there's anyone bought into either of Disciples Apocalypse or Lost Body, because... Nation of Domination, there might be a little bit more interest in them, but I mean, even that's clutching at straws. Yeah, this is just, the whole angle's just, just really grim, but there seems to just be someone in the WWF that's really high on it, and thus every week or not, we get something involved in it, and then we get pay-per-view matches. But you're sitting at home watching it, and you're like, why am I meant to care about this? And in the end, it's, I don't. When these guys are punching each other for 30 seconds on Raw before a break, it's fine. Whenever any, com- I'm going to say this now, whenever any combination of any of these guys ever have or ever will get in the ring together, it is decidedly not fine. This was indeed the nadir of a show which had a fair few contenders for that particular role. This was utterly diabolical. Uh, the DOA are terrible. Absolute- Bob, Bob, I think you, you said off the DOA should stand for dead on arrival. Well, it uh, does, right? That, isn't, that, isn't that the in-joke? I think, well, would you really want to make an in-joke? No, no, hang on. Yeah, this is the WWF, of course, you want to make an in-joke. About your what, this man pissing himself as his, his, his content, competition during the show just completely falls apart? Yes, he would. Absolutely. Well, I can understand it from that perspective, because uh, he can't possibly think this is any good. The match is almost not worth talking about. It was terrible. People, I don't care about doing rubbish things with... Uh, standing elbow drop ending for God's sake there is potentially something here if you tell us what these guys are actually fighting we'll talk about gang wars what's the gang warfare about it's not as if they're battling over each other's quote unquote turf they're just fighting in WWF arenas every week where would WWF invite them to this whole thing's about crushing sadly being thrown out of the really shit version of Nation, which none of us really cared about. So why are we? I mean, if you if you look at it based on that, the fact that that nation was terrible, from a sort of impartial mind, you, you should be looking at Crush and being like, "Play lads, you've went on to bigger and better things." 
So why are you meant to care that they're still battling out? Why, why did the battle start? Both Crush and Savvy were fired. So why have they then got beat? It doesn't make sense. Why is this happening? Why, why, why? Crush grabs three of his friends and brings them along a few weeks ago for no real reason. Then, as luck would have it, the next week, Savio conveniently has three of his friends he could bring along for no real reason. And that's it. That's, that, that's the feud. Two guys that used to be in the nation with the nation there looking on. And that's it. That's what we've got. There's no reason for this to exist whatsoever. When you have a feud for no reason that nobody gives a toss about, coupled with the not, <laughs> the not inconsiderable fact that the matches they've had against each other have been utterly atrocious and always will be, then that isn't exactly a recipe for success. However, it looks as though this feud must continue. So once again, we are the lucky ones. We get a video package for our Intercontinental title match. And it's a good one too. Built around Owen saying, I was the man who beat Stone Cold Steve Austin. Which of course at last month's pay-per-view, he was. Owen is out first and gets some strong heat. Michael Cole tries to get a word with Austin backstage, and that goes as well as you can expect. The glass shatters and Austin gets some huge cheers. When he gets to the ring, he gives Owen the fingers. Owen attacks the knee and the bell rings. So here we go. Owen Hart versus Stone Cold Steve Austin for the Intercontinental title. If Owen wins, Austin must kiss Owen's ass. Owen drags Austin to the post, but Steve kicks him off. There's pressing right hands and a crowd are right with them on this one. Irish whip and an Owen takes the Brett bump. Big face smashes, but he misses the diving leg off to the ropes. Whipping clothesline gets a quick two count as a huge Austin chunk goes up. He takes Owen off his feet, then really wrenches on an arm ringer. Owen flips out of it as only he can, but Austin gets back into control with a poke in the eye. They have a terrific battle over a hammerlock, and then Austin hits a driving slam. Lots of arm work still, but it's never ever dull. Owen with a spinning back elbow with a bad arm, which he then goes on to sell. We spin outside and Owen snaps Austin's hand onto the steps. Back in the ring and Owen bites his hand, hopefully telling us that I'll break his fingers. He ties Austin in the ropes and then gnaws on his fingers again. He goes for a charge but Austin breaks out with his old finisher, a stun gun. Owen with a runner attempt but Austin responds with a stiff powerbomb. Uh, Owen escapes to the outside and tries to leave the arena but Austin ain't having that. Drags him back to the ring. They have an Irish whip battle which Owen goes on to win and then he hits a beautiful belly-to-belly suplex. Big neck breaker and a leg drop. Top rope elbow, which looked great, gets a two count. Owen goes to vice Steve Austin's neck. Here's JR on commentary. Austin, in his career, has had neck problems. Yeah, about that. Austin fights out and goes for a sharpshooter of his own, but Owen kicks it away because he knows how. We then get an oddly high-pitched Let's Go Austin chant. Uh, Owen goes for a crossbody off the buckles. Austin reverses it for a flash two count. Owen up and hits a supreme deadweight German suplex for a two count. That was brilliant. Owen hits the camel clutch now. Austin battles to his feet, but he eats a DDT also for a two. Uh, we have a sleeper fight, which of course ends with Stone Cold hitting that jaw jacker, which looks too much like a Stone Cold stunner. Owen with a Russian leg sweep in which he really hooks the legs down straight into a pin to get a two count. Tight chin lock with Owen's feet on the ropes. Hebner sees this and he kicks Owen's feet off. Okay then, oh boy. Austin hits some punches and we have a reversal built around a tilt-a-whirl. 
This ends with Owen holding Austin with Austin's head very close to the mat. He drills him down as if it were a standard pole driver, i.e. dropping to a seated position. But Austin's head is set the other way around as if he were to receive a tombstone. With that being the case, there is nowhere for his head to go but straight down to the canvas with no protection whatsoever. Oh no. After a couple of seconds, it becomes apparent that Austin is legitimately hurt as Owen stands over him. He stalls for time with a Canada chance as both the commentators and fans finally twig that something has gone wrong. Hushed presents over the crowd. You can see Austin and the referee talking to each other while Owen is still trying to keep the crowd going, but uh, they've unsurprisingly they've they've left they've left it at this point. After what feels like an age, but it's probably only a few seconds, Austin somehow manages to crawl towards Owen and then gingerly guides him down for the worst schoolboy roll-up I've ever seen and hopefully ever will see. The planned finish was Austin winning though, so that gets a three count. Austin becomes the Intercontinental Champion. Austin somehow, how he does this, Beyond me, he manages to get to his feet, yet he's clearly in a lot of problems here because even holding the belt in his hand seems to be beyond him. He's given it, he holds it for about half a second and he just throws it down again. Several officials help him to the back and it is clear that although he's walking and moving, anybody can see that the lights might be on, but nobody is home. Craig, this match was absolutely cooking until that point. What a crying shame that was. Yeah, no, an absolute tragedy. I mean, when you're, when you're watching this, you're thinking this is, it's a different type of match to uh, Owen's brother against Austin at WrestleMania 13, but it had everything there as well. You're thinking this could even sort of pit that as a match of the year uh, contender, because I, I, I think that, but see, Probably the best example is when Owen does stuff that Brett does, like the Russian leg sweeps and things like that. I just think that Owens look better. So I'm just like, this this is great potential, this is great potential going forward. And then you've just got that sort of heartbreaking moment at the end. It's desperately, desperately sad that that instead of talking about how great a match we've got, we're talking about an incident that that could have long-term ramifications, not only on Austin's career, but on the prospects for... uh, for Owen Hart going forward. Bob? Yeah, it's, it seems like Owen's escaped a lot of potential heat from this. Um, I don't know whether that's a good place to start, but you know, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised we'll perhaps a bit more on it because it was a, a horror-looking move. Um, you know, Austin was just in the wrong place. Owen obviously didn't realise it. Um, and then, yeah, did just about the worst move possible, like a jumping tombstone pile driver. Well, Austin essentially absorbed the weight of his entire body and Owen's entire body on the top of his head. Um, and then, yeah, he didn't like, he didn't roll through it like a bump. He basically just like went out straight and then just flopped to the mat. Um, and it looked horrible. And they, you know, I'm, I'm pretty surprised they decided to replay it. Um, and then, yeah, like, you know, it was a shame. It was up until that point a, really really good match um i think owen might be the perfect opponent for austin in the sense that he's just about credible enough to go with him but he can kind of bounce around him enough to make austin look really really good um and yeah like you know 
Austin's clearly sparked out, and Owen's got no idea what to do. I mean, most normally, it, yeah, the the shame to a point was the stipulation because they could have just had Owen pin Austin and just called it, worked it out later. Um, but because of the stipulation with Austin having to kiss Owen's ass if he lost, they kind of had to have him win. Also, there's no real, you know, good way out of this. Um, I don't want to say fair fucks to Austin for being able to do a roll up, but you know kind of small credit to all three of them. They just sort of got out of it in one piece. There was a mild pop at the end, but I think the crowd also clearly by this point knew something was up. Um, you know, I'd rather Austin didn't try and walk out of there. Um, it's a good sign that he did, I suppose, but you, you, that, that's the one situation you'd rather do the stretcher job. And yeah, scary incident. Uh, a reminder if you needed one that this is a very real sport. Things can go wrong. And Austin's... You know, whether he wrestles again is another question, but he's pretty lucky that he seems to be okay now. Like, you know, he's got issues, but he doesn't, you know, he's walking about, he's moving okay. Um, yeah, scary finish, and Austin, I think, got quite lucky, because that could have been a lot, lot worse. Yeah, absolutely. I will get to the injury in a second. There's, there's no way we can't. This match was rocking until that point. It was absolute middle top range match of the year contender to me these two just clicked right from the off I was expecting that they would have some sort of feeling out process in kayfabe which would also kind of be a non-kayfabe feeling out process too the two of them coming into no. they uh, work different styles to be charitable and I thought that might take a little bit of ironing out but it didn't they just went for it everything they went for right from the start they work together so well and I think, it seems, no, churlish to even mention this, I thought some of the criticism Austin got and some of the sheets for only working a kick punch style in this match, he didn't do that at all. He was wrestling Owen throughout this match. So people say, oh, Austin, all he does is fight and punch. That's not true. This guy can wrestle. He's, he's proved that so many times in the past. And these two went together so well. So, as, as you say, Craig, variations on themes that the two of them were able to make work. I, I absolutely loved it. This was in the, I'm not the biggest star ratings guy, but this was very much in the four range and possibly even beyond that until we got to what we have to talk about here. And I just don't know how Owen Hart got this wrong. He's done this manoeuvre before. I think he did it against Brett at WrestleMania 10. He's certainly done it in a big couple of matches in 1994. I assume he actually called for a reverse pile driver. That, the tilt to a reversal setup would kind of suggest that. And somebody who, a worker I'm a massive fan of, and Owen Hart, I've said so ever since I joined this, joined this project, I think, he's, I think he's a great, great worker. I really do. Probably even so underrated in some circles. And I've always had him down as a relatively safe worker as well. So for him to be responsible for this, it's hard for a lot of people to take, not least me. But I do have a theory on this one, and... What else is a wrestling podcast if it's not a place for a wacky wrestling theory? And so Owen Hart has done this manoeuvre before, a standard drop to his knees, tombstone pile driver. I just wonder if, at the, at the back of his head for like a split second, it dawned on him that in the main event of this pay-per-view was The Undertaker. And we all know what his finishing move is. If Owen Hart hits the tombstone pile driver here, Austin is going to kick out at two. Of course he is. So I just wonder... If perhaps he was thinking, oh, I better not do this because it might to some degree, quote-unquote, kill the tombstone of the guy who's in the main event. 
And I might be massively overreaching there, but it's the only thing I can think of why Owen didn't execute the tombstone normally, usually, and safely, as he's done it in the past. He would know that you don't drop down to a seated position when you're executing the tombstone pile driver, because you've got to protect your opponent's head that way. Well, it any difference, right? If, if, if he went for a standard tombstone pile driver and Austin's head was too low, like, largely the same thing, because he's done the jumping tombstone before. If yeah, Austin's that's true. Yeah, go on. Sorry, Bob, carry on, yeah. Then, you know, if Austin's head's in the wrong position, it doesn't really matter which variation or version of the movie. It's okay if he'd have, if he'd have done a standard tombstone. It could have, it could have actually been, well, I don't know. Like, it's just, you know, shit happens, right? It's wrestling. Oh, yeah. You know, like I, you know, I, I, I'm not really one to blame people when, when things go wrong. All these guys are generally pretty well trained. There's a minimum level of ex, of, um, of expertise. You like the things that goes into, you know, being able to work at this kind of standard. And shit can go wrong. It's just the nature of what you're trying to do. Um, yeah. But as I said, I'm a little bit, that all being said, I'm a little bit surprised it didn't seem like Owen's got more heat for this. Um, but, you know, because apparently Austin called for the movies, what I've read. Okay. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I'd have to check that. But apparently that might have been the case. Yeah, just unfortunate, really. Um, I'm glad Austin seems to be okay. Um, Owen, you know, kind of did his best to kind of cover for it while Austin was recovering, and the finish was what it was. And it's one of those situations you don't, never want to be in it, and once you're in it, you just kind of got to get out there as smoothly as you can, and they just about did that. In the professional wrestling ring, a lot more things go right than go wrong. Because of that, we really notice when something does go wrong. When something goes as badly wrong as this, it's impossible for it not to dominate pretty much everything we're talking about. I wanted to talk about this match for five minutes, but I only mentioned it for about a fifth of that because this has just overrode everything. And Craig, do you think it's do you think it's right that, um, as Bob rightly says, that Owen has escaped any heat for this? Do you think that it's being seen backstage as it just just was an unfortunate accident, and it wasn't really? his fault in the strictest sense. Because I thought, I've got to say, I thought they would have been on him, on him like a ton of bricks over this one, and that hasn't happened. Yeah, you're, you're right. You'd have thought that with the upward trajectory that, that Austin uh, was on for, for something like this to have happened, that there would have been heat on heart. So based on the fact that there isn't, uh, you can only assume that the, the WWF see it much like I do for what it was, and that is a, a desperately unfortunate accident rather than rather than anything more serious than that. The real trivial fact now that Austin is nominally the Intercontinental Champion. That really doesn't mean very much at this point. I suppose we'll never really know where they were going to go with that at this point and whether it was going to be uh, a two or three pay-per-view feud with Owen. That's where I suspect it would have gone. How long he would have been the IC Champion for is a matter of conjecture because I was, I'm pretty confident that he would have been hot-shotted right back into the WWF title picture if not winning the belt before the end of the year, would have been my guess on that. Um, smart money is that he's going to have to relinquish the IC title. There'll be a tournament, which I'd make Owen favourite to win if there's no real heat on him. But yeah, that's um, almost talking about booking is um, totally inconsequential at this point. We're just glad that Austin appears to be generally okay. He's going to have to take a couple of months off, at least by the sound of it, but considering towards the end of the week after this event happened, it could have been the worst case scenario. I think everybody will be breathing a massive sigh of relief over that. Yeah, what could have been a really, really great match, and was what we got was very, very good. Doesn't really matter. It's just the last two minutes 
thankfully, thankfully, it looks as though Austin is going to come out of this okay. It's, um, it really is just one of those things. It sounds trite, but it's true. This is pro wrestling. Things can go wrong. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, you have to draw attention to it. Attention rightly gets drawn to it, but that doesn't make it anybody's fault. That doesn't mean that these guys don't know what they're doing. It should not in any way denigrate the respect that people have or should have for professional wrestlers. I could do the things they do. 99.8% of the time, they hit every mark. And we can almost forgive them the 0.2% where things don't go right. Right, so I'll pick ourselves back up for the main events for which we get a long video package. And again, another excellent one. All three video packages have been really, really good tonight. This one talks about pride, power and conflict. Here comes Brett and he's got the Canadian flag and the microphone. He invites everybody to stand back and listen to the Canadian national anthem, which he dedicates to all his fans around the world. Not quite sure that's how it works, but never mind. But we do get all of O Canada, which I think this month I've heard more times than I've heard my alarm clock. Uh, HBK next, and he does his bad dancing, which thinks it is good dancing thing. Undertaker outlast, quite correctly, he is the champion. He brings up the lights to which Brett gives a funny little shrug. HBK, like all good referees do, checks both guys for weapons. When this is happening, Brett grabs the belt and he slogs Yuti with it. We are off. WWF title match in our main event, Undertaker versus Bret Hart. If Undertaker wins, Bret cannot wrestle in the US ever again, supposedly. If guest referee Shawn Michaels favours the Undertaker, HBK cannot wrestle in the US ever again. Okay, here we go. This is a long one. Bret starts with some sharp kicks, but Undertaker responds with some big punches in the corner. A big darting clothesline and we spill to the outside. Bret hits the guardrail as Shawn is already the loudest referee I've ever heard. Yet another Irish whip to the steps tonight, this time by Brett. Brett with a dive, but Undertaker catches him and runs him to the post. Michael threatens him with a DQ. Back in the ring, Undertaker with some suit bones and suit bones and some hard back strikes. Backbreaker cranking on the neck gets a two count. We hear that Austin has been taken to the hospital with neck damage. Big bear hug by the Undertaker, but Brett has been lifted well off the mat on that one, so it's not just a standard bear hug wrestle in fairness to them. Brett tries to bite his way out of it, but Undertaker hits a big boot. He goes for an elbow drop, but Brett moves. He misses a big boot again. Now Brett works on the legs with his own stomps and kicks. A leg whip, then he holds it up against the ropes and dives on it. Brett carries on working the leg. Very effectively, but the crowd are just starting to tune out a little. Figure of four leg lock. While Sean gives it the old, what do you say? Paul Bearer waddles down to ringside. A few two counts and Undertaker snarls at his former muse. He reverses the hold, but Brett easily gets to the ropes. Undertaker runs outside and he nails Paul with punches. Brett seizes this opportunity and he attacks Undertaker's knee from behind. This allows him to lock in the ring post figure of four. That move really needs a name. He breaks the hold at 4.9. Now out come Pillman and Owen, Owen looking unsurprisingly somewhat ashen-faced. The match loses some flow as things get a bit repetitive at this point. Brett hooks on another front ankle lock, which Undertaker tries to battle out with a headlock. After a couple of minutes, he kicks Brett in the face. Whatever works. Undertaker heads outside again, and he punches Owen and Pillman. Ah, oh boy. Brett gets to his feet, but only to take a choke slam. He actually does the death cover, you know, hands over the chest. But Sean is distracted by the departing Owen and Pillman. So Sean gets back to make the count, and it's only a two. Big shot by Undertaker puts uh, Brett back down after an O'Connor roll. 
Brett rams Undertaker into the post for the umpteenth time. Here's Michaels. My patience is wearing thin. Yeah, mine too, mate. <laughs> uh, Brett is in control once again. Backbreaker for an emphatic two count. Great suplex followed by a second row powerboy drop. Two count. DDT. Undertaker counters with a waistlock stun gun. He unloads some quick fire fists. To the ropes and another flying clothesline. Irish Whip gets a Brett bomb for a two count. A very tired looking big boot this time and his own leg drop from the Undertaker. Another two. Brett tries to escape and go somewhere, but Undertaker choke slams him off the apron into the ring for another two count. Good spot, bad setup. Undertaker goes to walk the ropes, but Brett kicks him off. They go for a superplex, but Taker half slips. Not a planned spot, but it played into the story of the match with all the legwork, so I'm going to let that one go. Superplex itself is extremely good when it lands. Both guys are down, Brett is up first, and we get the sharpshooter, which Undertaker breaks. You don't see that every day. He kicks Brett all the way to the floor. Brett is stunned by this. Back in with a clothesline, and now he calls for the tombstone. Brett fights out of it, grabs Undertaker legs first. He then puts on a version of the sharpshooter around the post, which is interesting. That doesn't last long as Undertaker kicks him off. In a, I've typed that phrase a lot today, but he kicks him off into Michaels. Michaels is hobbling around outside. Brett seizes his moment, and he reaches for a steel chair. He hits the Undertaker unprotected, square in the head. Sean recovers for one, two. Taker kicks out. Right, now our finishing sequence. Sean sees the chair in the ring and he realises that Brett must have used it. They jaw for a bit, then Brett drops the F-bomb. And he spits right at Sean. Big old flop as well. Michaels has finally had enough and he swings with the chair trying to hit the hitman. But Brett ducks. Undertaker gets crocked instead. Michaels immediately realises what he's done. But he also knows that if he doesn't administer the three count, he is gone. So, Brett casually calls him over. And Sean, staring right at Brett as he does it, counts one, two, three. Brett the Hitman Hart becomes a fifth-time WWF champion. Michaels immediately takes off and he leaves swiftly, maybe a bit too swiftly, followed by The Undertaker. Brett and the Hearts celebrate in the ring as the fans leave very, very quickly. Those who are left throw garbage at them. And that is how we leave SummerSlam 1997. Bob, taking all of that. Yeah, um, I think the minute they put Shawn Michaels in this match, they denied these two any chance of having like a, a an all-time or a great match. I don't necessarily know that Bretton Undertaker are probably capable of having an all-time or a great match. Um, but what Shawn knocked off in, in ring potential, he more than added in his presence. I thought Shawn was the MVP of this match. Um the, the story surrounding him trying to rest things straight down the middle was great. Um, the action at times was quite plodding, but Michaels' presence meant there was always something going on. Um, the match was really good as well. I should say that. Um, and yeah, like it, it built well. It's a typical big Brett match with him working the leg most of the match. And Undertaker's, you know, to a point it's kind of just there. Like, you know, that is the one downside of having Brett and Sean in the same match. Undertaker really is just the third wheel. Um, but they worked a really nice match. They told a really nice story. And they got this finish bang on. Um, credit to 
the guys that put that together and the mechanics of the last two minutes and, and everything regarding that and everything regarding the stipulations going in, um, that worked really, really well. Brett's champion, which he probably should be, um, although given that they've turned Michael since and given that Austin's injured, you, you kind of left wondering who they're going to put him against. Um, well, we'll come to that later on. Um, but yeah, really, really good match. Um, Sean added a lot to it. I, I, I thought this was a really good main event. Craig? Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was really good as well. Uh, the stipulations made it clear not only that from a positive perspective that you weren't going to get a uh, that you were going to get a firm finish. You, it, it was quite clear that it was going to be a title change, but you, were, you weren't going to get a DQ or a count-out, cop-out finish. But it did also make make it abundantly clear that Bret Hart would win the title and also that you can imagine Shawn Michaels would have some sort of role in that, uh, which, as Bob alludes to, did make it seem like The Undertaker was a third person there. Uh, sort of the... the, the with the sort of the focus on the other two and uh, him being relegated to third position, uh, it was a slow build. It was a good match, though. I don't think it was as good, perhaps, as their uh, match at Night uh, Six Royal Rumble. Is that right? Was it Night Six or was it Night Five? Yeah, Night Six Royal Rumble. Yeah, Night Six Royal. I thought I thought that was better. I think it was about the same uh, same time. But yeah, no, the, 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 it started slowly. I thought sort of uh, very good finish. Uh, Interesting to see what happens with, with Michaels next, but as as Bob says, there, there is sort of there aren't many other people that are likely to uh, step up into that main event picture. But no, this was this was good, uh, very much well, well worth seeing. And yeah, uh, from a storyline perspective and an in-ring perspective, a lot of positives to see here. For me, this was definitely better than the Royal Rumble '96 match. Uh, I actually went back and watched that one a couple of months ago and I was pretty bored to tears. I don't think that was helped by the face-to-face dynamic. This one having a clear heel face down the line helped it a lot. Just want to get another negative out of the way, which isn't really their fault. This, the, the length of this match was extended by eight minutes due to the curtailing of uh, the previous contest. And you could tell that there were a couple of other smoking mirrors thrown in, but I don't think would have been there. We didn't need the bearer stuff. We didn't need Pillman and Owen being there. That was probably there just to give Undertaker a bit of a breather, I think. And they did go to the ring post well once. Well, the, the, the Pillman Owen thing set up um, Michael's getting distracted. I suspect that was quite yeah, an important part of the yeah, match. Yeah, that, that point, because, yeah, I'll give, you, I'll give you that, Bob. Although. Yeah, but there's only a choke slam to put Brett down. You're probably right, but then do you really? That was an important set piece in that point in the match to have Undertaker get a convincing near fall set up and just to, to, to play off that Michaels is distracted or you know he's not. Yeah, you know, that, that I, I think that would have been in there regardless. Bear probably slam? not. Bear... Do, yeah. do the death pin. Yeah. Yeah, I think that set that that whole, all set up for, for for Michaels being distracted, and that set up for Austin being pissed off at for, uh, Austin Undertaker being pissed off at Michaels. I think that makes sense. Okay, I kind of let that go. I still thought it felt somewhat awkward in there, but uh, okay, fair enough. It was just one of those things which was. It might have been important in the context storyline, but it still felt a bit like padding as a good eight to ten minutes of this match felt. But I shouldn't take away from the other twenty minutes. I thought these two worked really well together, actually. Again, this was a motivated performance by The Undertaker. Probably not as smooth and well-rounded as it was from his own personal perspective as his match against Vader last month. Because he's obviously in with, you know, he's in with Bret Hart and you know, he's not on his level. But 
he gave it, he more than gave it the old college try take it, especially knowing he was losing a title. And I think these two are capable of even better than this if they could just have a straight-up wrestling match against each other. And I don't see it. Well, it looks as though we are going to be getting it now at the UK pay-per-view next month. That could be something very interesting. Yeah, lots of good, lots of good uh, high spots in this match. The legwork, whilst it took the crowd out of the moment a couple of times, it made absolute perfect sense. And for me, it was never dull. It wasn't like Brett's back work on Sid last year, which was just, you know, I thought my entire life drift before my eyes when he was doing that. Brett was mixing it up here and doing things which were never, never dull. I thought that sharpshooter around the uh, around the ring post, that was that was great. That was terrific. I just wish you'd be able to lock I thought that was longer. rubbish. I thought that was brilliant. That was no, it looked bad. terrible. No, no, you no, can't do no. can't a sharpshooter around a ring post. The, 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 the dimensions don't work. Think about it logically. He tried his main sharpshooter and Undertaker kicked him off. That's Bret Hart's finisher. What else is he going to try and do? He knows that the figure of four around the post is a painful move. Why not try his main move around the ring post? Even if it did look... But he didn't pull it off. It looked rubbish. It was just Undertaker lying down with his legs crossed through the ring post. That was it. First time, he's ever, first time he's ever done it and it didn't work. Undertaker kicked him off. Okay. But yeah, no, but it didn't look good. Like, you're, you're arguing the point. It, it didn't look rubbish. That was the problem. <laughs> It looked like he was trying to hurt him around the ring post. Undertaker's just lying down by the ring post. Brett crosses his legs through the post, and that was it. Like, it, there was no, you know, anyone could have been in that position. It didn't look like it hurt at all. I, I, I like being in the position that I actually agree with both of you. I like the idea that not being able to tap out the Undertaker with a sharpshooter leads him to sort of ramping up a little bit, but... Uh, Bob is also right uh, and clearly very angry about the, the way that it looks because it did look shit, as Bob says. But 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 Rory, Rory's right about the in principle the idea if your if your finisher doesn't if your finisher doesn't work then you have to do something more severe with it. Whether if it's like a power bomb off the top rope, say rather than normal power bomb. So the idea that he went to the ring post based on using the figure four for a while makes sense, but the, visually it looked shit. And um, yeah, I, 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 it could work on someone smaller. I don't know, but it could work. But a guy that's six foot ten uh, doesn't work. No, I'd, I'd agree. It would probably work on someone like Shawn Michaels. Actually, we might get to see that. Maybe. Uh, yeah, I think it probably will. Maybe we'll... That's nice Undertaker for you, isn't it? Meaty thighs, pal. And it does go back <laughs> to a point. I'll, I'll meet you on this, Tom Bob. You, you've said it before, and you are quite right here, where you say that. Brett doesn't have an impact finisher, so if the sharpshooter doesn't work in a match context, there's nothing else to him to really go with. He doesn't have an MDK finisher or anything like it. This was his version of that, and I still liked it a lot. Anyway, anyway. M- MDK? Murder, death, kill. Right. Okay, is, is, is this a Mortal Kombat reference that I've, uh, I've missed? Yeah, let's not get there. Maybe you should, maybe you should just get me uh, the axe kick. That would be... Uh... I'm doing. Sorry, Rory. I, I think that was an odd way to finish, but carry on. We can have a Mortal Kombat finisher one. Uh, finisher? Mortal Kombat tournament one day. Anyway, but then one thing I think we could all agree was the match was good, but it was elevated by the magnificent finishing sequence, one of the best I've seen in the course of this project. They got everything right. And Michaels, who I'm with you, probably did dominate the match 
although I'll be not to its detriment, because you could see throughout the match he was just getting slightly more wound up. He was getting to him a bit more, a bit more, trying to hold it together. And he sees a chair in the ring, and that's the catalyst. But but I, I thought this was the I thought the, the the whole reason it worked was that they really ran home the fact Michaels was trying really hard to be impartial. Yeah, exactly. That exactly. was that was the whole point of the first twenty minutes of the match. It was the whole point of. Um, you know, that was why I think the, the, the Owen and Pillman spot was important because Michael's was like, I, I'm not having this shit. This is a clean match. I'm not having you guys at ringside go away. That was the, you know, I think I had to Undertaker went after them. And that was the whole point behind that. And when Brett did a move around the turnbuckle area of the match, I remember one of the f- figure four spots he did, uh, like Brett, like Michael's counted a five and Brett let go at five. Michael's like, you, look, I'm, I'm upholding the rules here. This isn't me being an arsehole. This is me being a referee. Um, and that was what they really rammed home, which is why the ending sequence made so much sense. Because it's not like, it, it, you know, it's not like Michael saw the chair and just disqualified Brett. He said, I can't disqualify, I didn't see it, but I'll confront him about it. And, and that was Michael's trying to be fair. That was the whole point. Like, this is what made the storytelling so good, was that Michael's was really, really trying to be fair. He really wanted to call this down the middle. And then Brett, Caused him to go. Michael's cost Undertaker the title, and Michael's like, "Well, the guy spat in my face. What do you want me to do?" And now I'm the bad guy. That was, I thought, the most significant part of the match was the storytelling of Michael's. They got that so well. He did his role really well, and they laid out that really well. And it set up the finish that they got perfectly right. Well, almost perfect. They almost fucked it up because the chair was in the corner, and apparently someone tried to pull the chair away from the corner of the ring. And Brett was like, "Nah, leave it there. We need it in a minute." Um, sort of ringside tried to do that. So yeah, that almost could have gone very, very wrong. But thankfully it didn't. I was going to mention that. That was a timekeeper, dear old Mark Eaton. Now, nobody included him in, so he, he dragged the chair out of the ring. But they, it was fairly important in the context of the finish. Uh, the cameras didn't pick any of that up, luckily. That could have been very embarrassing. At the very end where Sean, he's tried. He's really, really tried. But his mortal enemy, who he, he was given his every sinew the last 28 minutes to try to be fair towards, who's just spat at him and told him to fuck off. He, he, Shawn Michaels in kayfabe this is in kayfabe we know he's not going to be even he trying his best he's not going to be able to stand for that so he's got a chair in his hand what else is he going to do and he gets it wrong but because of the stipulation which you could say yeah, over predicated to finish okay fair enough but you can always when Michaels goes down to count they got the ring positioning perfect it's taking place in the one area in the ring where he and Brett are looking right at each other. That's that's the story. On, on, and they say this stuff isn't Shakespeare. And Michaels is always almost trying to stop himself making the count, but he knows he can't because if he does that, he's gone from the company in America. You can almost see the angel and devil on his shoulder, and he's playing out this internal battle between us when he's just a, a guest referee in a professional wrestling match. You know, sometimes, just sometimes, this stuff can tell stories that no other art form really can. And if I sound like a fanboy, it's because I am. Fantastic finish. Making a good match. A very, very good match. We'll talk about Brett a little more in the context of Sean later on the show. But I just want to talk about briefly before we wrap up on SummerSlam. Uh, Craig, your thought on Undertaker's title run? Uh, it, it didn't sort of do... It, for me, I don't think his run with the belt elevated either the title or the performer. It, it just felt like it was just there. 
Uh, yeah, it's difficult to sort of wax too lyrically about about the title run, and it's crazy to think that what, about six months, five or six months, he's had it. Nothing sort of very so nothing's had, very little sort of stands out. I mean, you look you look back at even just the sort of previous month's pay per view, and the sort of main event was was a big sort of USA Canada thing, whereas. He was stuck facing Vader in the in the penultimate match and got half the time as the main event. Yeah, it didn't sort of it it didn't do anything for me. I don't think he did anything for the WWF title, and it certainly didn't do anything for the Undertaker him having the belt around his waist. Your thoughts, Bob? Undertaker's uh, been champion for about three, four months. Is it? I don't know. Since, since, since WrestleMania in, in it's August, October to August. Yeah, four months. Sorry, my maths is failing me early on a Saturday morning. Or even March to August, rather rather October. Um, But, yeah, uh, who did he face in April, Rory? I can't remember. Uh, He faced Mankind at the Revenge of the Taker in your house, which wasn't even the main event. I can barely remember that match. I mean, I I remember the... Okay, maybe I'll jog your memory by saying that's the one where Mankind went head first through the table. Oh, yes. Ah, yeah, the flash paper thing that they that they, they kind of messed up and that's a reset. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. The yeah. Boy, that's the one. He did, yeah, he did, The Undertaker did main event King of the Ring, but that was against Farouk. So again, it's like, maybe it's not his, his fault, but I mean, Farouk versus The Undertaker isn't a main event match. No, and the match with Austin was a, a weirdly placed one. I thought that was strange. Um, and yeah, he came into this one as... You know the, the the third wheel. I mean, it's big feuds with Paul Bearer and his brother that doesn't exist on screen yet. That's been his big feud of the summer. Like the reason that he hasn't elevated the title, and the title hasn't elevated him, is that it's not really been his focus. Not yeah. that characters like the Undertaker particularly should be championship driven anyway, or perhaps isn't. It doesn't lend itself to that all that easily. Um, but yeah, a bit flat. A bit like a, a transitional champion after a transitional champion. Um, but, you know, he made sense at the time winning it, and it made sense now losing it, and it never really made sense for him to lose at any point before that. Um, yeah, it, it didn't do any damage to either him or the title, but it was quite forgettable. Greek, when you consider... The fact that I think he was given the title in the first place. I said this back on our, sh- our WrestleMania show back in back in March. <laughs> it felt like a long service medal. As if they said to him, Mark, you've been here six and a half years. You had a six-day title reign back in 1991. You spent most of your time here working against stiffs, pun intended. We're going to give you a little run with the belt. Thank you, mate. And that was it. There was no real plan. He... He defended the title against Mankind, as I say. You know, a good match, but it wasn't even the main event of the pay-per-view that was named after him, for crying out loud, Revenge of the Taker. Yeah, that match with Austin, which I didn't like, which I don't think should even have happened, if you're going to do face-with-face with those two, happened way too soon. <laughs> main event of King with the Ring against Farouk, enough said there. And a good performance against a completely unmotivated Vader in another match that was in the middle of the show on last month's pay-per-view. So yeah, it just hasn't felt like a title run for The Undertaker. And as we said, his main feud is with Paul Bearer. And all of that stuff when that first came around, well, after the flash paper stuff in, in April, really kicked in with the brother stuff in the beginning of June. That is what Undertaker has been doing. 
he's just been this guy who's held the belt. It's not been his number one focus storyline at all. And I'm very old school in this. If you are the WWF champion, that is your main storyline, defending the belt. Yes, you can have other things going on, going on at well, going on at the same time, of course. Uh, you are the whole reason you are in the company, and that is to be the WWF champion. That should override everything. You can have branching things coming out of it, that's fine. But it should not be the second focus when you're holding the damn thing. And especially if you're in a world title match at SummerSlam, whereas you've put forward, Bob, Undertaker was just the third bloke in there behind the real storyline, which was Sean against Brett. So, yeah, this isn't going to hurt Undertaker. And he hasn't lost his pops. He's, he's still always going to be one of, if not the most popular guy in the country, his en- in the country, in the company. His entrance will always make sure of that. He's, I think he's out and out unbooable. Crowds aren't going to turn on him. Seeing Undertaker is a spectacle. But you're always going to have that anyway. He almost didn't really need the title. I don't think he's ever going to need the title again. He's one of these people. Like, uh, go back 10 years, say someone like Roddy Piper, for example. The character and the action and the activities, they sell themselves. doesn't need the extra bells and whistles of being the world champion. (laughs) He certainly hasn't disgraced himself as champion, but he wasn't really given a chance to do anything really mega with it because this stuff with Kane went... Whenever we get to see him, he was teased again on Raw later this month. Still no dice. And I'll be honest, I'm even starting to get a little bit tired of that now. It's like Boise says to Del Boy in a losing streak, do something, Del, or get off the pot. Getting a bit bored of that now. Anyway, SummerSlam 1997. Craig, out of 10, if you please, uh, your overall score rating and your thoughts. Uh, yeah, if, if, uh, if we're comparing it year on year, I think SummerSlam was, this year was better than last year's. Again, it was sort of based around the, the last couple of matches really delivering, uh, whereas both, sorry, both had the last two matches really delivering, but this year's also had that sort of really good intro match. <laughs> yeah, there was bits and bobs, I think. I think going forward, there's probably going to be some good storyline stuff from this. But from a standalone perspective, we're talking, and I'm going to get this in the right format this time around, Bob, uh, probably like two or three out of ten, a, a, a maximum. The, the, the first match was good in the last two, but the stuff in the middle was, was pretty grim. So, yeah, really, really sort of, uh, really poor, poor stuff. There wasn't, wasn't anything much from a wrestling point of view. And one of the biggest takeaways, uh, well, sort of two of the biggest chats we've had on this event was whether or not the Undertaker's title uh, reign was a success, and also about Stone Cold breaking his neck. I mean, that's that's not a great. Don't don't forget the million dollar challenge. Sorry, yes. Okay, but but, that, but that's another case in point that it's not in ring stuff. There wasn't much. Uh, you you wouldn't really recommend many people go back and watch uh, much of this. And personally speaking, it was also quite sad to see some of uh, to see Pillman and just sort of fall that he's taken. I mean, going forward, Shamrock might turn into something good, but uh, this show really, really highlighted the lack of uh, depth in, in the WWF roster, whilst at the same time continuing to push things such as the gang war stuff that really nobody cares about. So yeah, it's difficult to really be too positive about this show. What are we saying in two or three? Come on, off the fence. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give it a three. That's what it is. Bob? Uh, yeah, I, I I did like this show a lot more than most people. Um, I'll give it a seven. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
it was flat in the middle, I'll, I'll concede, but it, it was, you know, I've seen a lot worse. I feel like I've seen a lot worse. Um, I really liked the opener. I thought so. My main was really good up until you know the injury, and I don't know how much you can hold that against it uh, or hold it against the show. And then I thought the main event was excellent. And yes, the the bit with the million dollar challenge probably did add at least one point onto the, that was brilliant. But at least one point onto the show. Um, yeah, maybe I was just in a good mood, but I thought this was a decent show. But I I, I seem to be in the minority. Well, I'm going to split the difference, so to speak, and I'm going to go for a five on this one. As I said in my opening remarks, there's just too much wrong with this show from an in-ring perspective for it to be described as a good show. Yes, you're on a hiding to nothing with some of the people in those matches, but even so, don't have them in the bloody matches then. But yet, there was still a lot going on here. Things were resolved, things were settled, things were set up, and as I said earlier, that is what SummerSlam should do. It's just about the in-ring product. That should absolutely be your number one prime mover, of course. But if you can get the storylines right, you can get things coming out of them going forward. Because as we said before, the period from SummerSlam to the Royal Rumble is kind of a dead time for the WWF. So if you have a lot going on, you're helping yourself there quite a lot. And they really did this. Some good in-ring action, absolutely. The opener, despite my, despite my criticisms of it, got the crowd into it. He had an excellent IC title match, which sadly ended the way it did. A good, if overly long, main event with some epically perfect storytelling. And the million dollar challenge. I think it's going to become a touchstone for this entire podcast going forward, but there you go. So yes, weighing up everything. Not great from an entering standpoint. Fascinating from a storyline standpoint. Did feel like a big show. So I am giving SummerSlam 1997... Five out of ten. The roar after SummerSlam begins with a cacophony of booze as the Hart Foundation come to the ring for an interview with JR. He accuses Brett of provoking HBK yesterday and says that the US will not be proud of him. Brett responds by stating people will suffer for their crimes, but if you don't suffer, then it wasn't a crime. He wants Michaels out of the WWF. He brushes off the supposed challenge of the Patriot at Ground Zero. In the line of the night, if not the year, we discover that the Hart Foundation do not wear dresses. JR rather suddenly introduces our new commissioner, who turns out to be Sergeant Slaughter. Like all good babyface authority figures, he proceeds to lay down the law to the heels. Bulldog will face Shamrock again. Pillman will wear a dress tonight. And Owen will take on Austin soon. Sure enough, here comes Stone Cold, and he doesn't need doctor's approval to open up another can of whoop house on Owen. Farouk is backstage, the nation are here to stay, you can take the men off the streets, but you can't take the streets out of the men. Slaughter sends out the rest of the nation to the back before Shamrock against Carl Mustafa. Miguel and Jesus attack Karma on the outside, leaving an easy prey for Ken's belly-to-belly suplex. Here is Bracus Vida. He is after Helmsley this time. For some reason, Sonny is the guest ring announcer of Attacker versus Brian Christopher. Michinoku gets the win by hooking a suplex into a cradle. Slaughter delivers the dress to Pillman. He has to, win it, has to wear it every week until he beats somebody or else he'll be suspended. A curious matchup next as Hunter takes on Vader. China hits the interfering Paul Barrow with a drop kick and both competitors brawl on the outside for a very tepid double countout. 
after promo where he tells us he would be glad to help Bret Hart leave America, the Patriot beats the Sultan with a full Nelson slam. He and Bret then slug it out to the sound of loud USA chants. The second hour begins with Vince introducing HBK. The crowd are one step ahead of the story here as they're already largely booing Sean before he even emerges. He accuses the entire WWF and all the fans of dumping all the crown, all the controversy from last night in his lap. Vince rather ludicrously asks if Sean is in cahoots with Brett, and HBK right, quite rightly calls him a dumb son of a bitch. Sean has to take on Undertaker at Ground Zero, but it doesn't matter because Michaels lays down for absolutely nobody. The Undertaker's gong hits, Undertaker comes to the ring, but HBK disappears before he gets there. The Phenom is here to take Michaels a soul and, might, and make him rest in peace. Barrett interrupts and tells Undertaker Kane is coming as Undertaker leaves the lights turn red. Ahmed is in action against Chains. Slaughter again dispatches the nation before it can start, but the DOA have a go as well. Have to go as well. Savio threatens to nick a bike and the distraction lets Ahmed hit the plunge for the win. The nation come back out, but instead of saluting with Johnson, all three men attack him and leave him laying. The Godwins face off with the headbangers. The farmers win when Henry gives Thrasher a slot drop. Goldust and Marlena are in the front row for the appearance of Mrs. Brian Pillman. Slaughter pushes him through the curtain. He is, in, he is indeed dressed clad. His match with Bob Holly has all the comedy spots you would expect and ends in a count-out defeat for Pillman. When the Runnels family distracts him, he'll be back in a dress next week. Brett invites himself to the table for the commentary on Owen vs. Dude. After some good TV action, Brett beats Dude on the outside. Owen puts on the sharpshooter, but Austin comes down to ringside. As officials try to restrain him, he whacks Owen with the slammy line Dude to pick up the victory. Mick celebrates with some dudettes afterwards, one of whom looks suspiciously like his real-life wife, Colette. We kick off Raw on August the 11th in Biloxi, Mississippi, with HBK in the ring. He again blames the WWF for what happened at SummerSlam. He tells the crowd that you're either with me or against me, but the response he gets suggests the latter. Nevertheless, he will beat Mankind tonight and he will do so with the same to Undertaker at Ground Zero. Slaughter comes down and he and Sean go nose to nose, well, chin to chin. Sergeant here to play games and if he needs to come down on HBK for the betterment of the WWF, then he will. HBK ends a rough segment by promising later tonight he'll be introducing a much-needed insurance policy. Our first contest is something called a country whipping match between Hawk and Henry Godwin. You have to whip your opponent out of the ring, they have straps in their hands and just beat each other with them for a while until a dire finish, as an interfering animal hits Henry with a slot bucket to send him to the outside. Scott Putski defeats Tony Williams with a Polish hammer, but it's only shown picture in picture, as the main focus is watching Pillman put on his dress in the change room. On Goldust and Marlene, there's a golden handicap, or a hidden camera. Undertaker appears backstage to tell HBK he'll be watching his match tonight. At Ground Zero, the only insurance Sean needs is burial insurance. Brian Pillman and Dress take on Flash Funk. Pillman gets distracted by the handicap footage from earlier, which Goldust plays on the Tron, allowing Funk to cradle him for the three. The humiliation continues. Dude Loss joins us for a chat. He reckons Mankind will defeat HBK tonight. Funny that. Michaels appears on screen and says he wants somebody to hit Foley so he wakes up in the 21st century. Not quite there yet, Sean. He reiterates that his insurance policy will be here tonight. Dude brushes it off by quoting from I Am The Walrus by The Beatles. 
Owner Bulldog are here to take on the Patriot and a mystery partner, which turns out to be Ken Shamrock, who gets a very strong reaction. Slaughter prevents Brett coming down to ringside, and via the distraction, Patriot full Nelson slams Bulldog onto a chair, which Owen threw into the ring, to secure the win. We get footage of Brett landing in Toronto Airport last week. Yep, they still love him. Hitman makes a reasonable point when he says that, after all, he is the World Wrestling Federation champion. Here is Sean talking to his insurance policy. We can't quite see who he is, but he's definitely not wearing a mask this time. Farouk versus Chains is next. The ref gets bumped and then none other than Rocky Maivir runs in. To the shock of nobody, hits Chains with an Uranage slam. Farouk wins and then Rocky does the nation salute. After the break, the DOA try and fail to break down the door of the nation's dressing room. The Patriot makes an unscheduled appearance in the ring. He calls out Brett. Hart answers the challenge in the two brawl. Inevitably, the Foundation turn up and beat Wilkes to a pulp. Slaughter and co. eventually bring it to a halt. Another Brackers vignette. He wants Vader now. Make up your mind, mate. Our main event is indeed Michaels versus Mankind. They bring out some big guns of free TV, including Sean hitting an elbow drop off the apron onto Mankind, who is prone on the announce table. During the match, Hells in China come down to ringside, and after a few more minutes of action, Rick Rude joins us. Hunter distracts the officials, then Rude lamps Mankind in the head with a chair. Swinchy music gets Shawn Michaels the victory. Before he can celebrate, the gong hits and the lights flicker. Bear again tells us that Kane is coming, and that's how we finish. And there's no doubt, whether you did your job or you didn't do your job, <laughs> if it hadn't have been for you, The Undertaker might still be the World Wrestling Federation Champion. So let me get this straight. You... The Undertaker, Brett the Hitman Hart, and the best that I can tell, all of the fans of the World Wrestling Federation are dumping this in my lap. Uh, yeah. I don't know that's necessarily fair. Shut up! Because you know something? It's just like you. It's just like Bret Hart. And whether anybody in this arena likes it or not, it's just like all the fans of the World Wrestling Federation to not take responsibility for themselves and pass the buck on to the Heartbreak Kid because everybody knows I don't give a damn what anybody thinks of me. Shut up. Yeah. I went out there last night for the first time in my career, put on a referee shirt, and did one hell of a job. I called it down the middle. Right or wrong? Yes, you did. Exactly. Mag, may I ask you a pertinent question, please? Yeah, top it up. All right. It's on a lot of people's minds. Is something like this as controversial as it always is? Are you in any way in cahoots with Bret Hart? As preposterous as that may sound, a lot of people are wondering that. 
You know, I've always known you were a Nimrod, but now you have convinced me that you are the dumbest son of a bitch I have ever met in my life. Well, first of all, I don't appreciate that. Let's get that straight, okay? And in Excuse me while I stutter in my loafers, McMahon. Well, you just might be stuttering come September 7 when you step into this ring with The Undertaker. That's when you're going to be stuttering. Here, you can finish it. Get your ass out of here. You can move it or lose it, McMahon. Let me tell everybody what... The story is, I am not in any way, shape, or form in cahoots with Bret Hart. It is no secret that Bret Hart doesn't like me, Bret Hart doesn't respect me, but one thing is for damn sure, Bret Hart needs me, because I am the only man in the World Wrestling Federation that has beat his ass. And that is the truth. And Undertaker, Undertaker, you and I, for as long as we've been in the World Wrestling Federation, have never crossed paths. Except for now. Something. Undertaker, the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels, lays down for absolutely no one. I don't do it for Bret Hart. I don't do it for you. I don't do it for the fans of the World Wrestling Federation. I don't do it for anybody. Undertaker, the next time you see Shawn Michaels, his super... Ten years, ten years I've given you, and this is the respect that you give me. Each and every one of you can go to hell. Undertaker, the next time you see me, my super kick is going to be one foot down your throat. Come back here. With our first major discussion point of uh, the TVs this particular month, and that is the long-mooted, maybe you might say that, heel turn of one Shawn Michaels, Esquire. Confirmed his heel turn pretty much straight away in an interview he conducted with Vince McMahon on the 4th of August. Uh, As so often in the last few months, HBK got to open the second hour with an interview, because that's when the most people are watching, supposedly. And he comes out and he gets booed almost instantly, before he says a word, in fact. So the crowd knew what was coming. They were always going to boo Michaels in this situation. He comes out, and it must be said, the promo he actually cuts at this point, not radically different to a lot of the promos he's cut 
since, if you really want to go back that far, since the day after Survivor Series, he's coming out, he says he doesn't have any friends anyway, he's always going to do what he's going to do, he's going to dance, he's going to be his own man, he's not going to comb his hair or whatever, he does what he wants. But this time he threw in the extra added caveat to say that he blamed the fans for everything that happened. All the controversy at SummerSlam was the fans' fault. That doesn't really make sense, but never mind, an angle is an angle. And the fans ate it up. They just booed him out of the building. I'd say he got the most heat here than he did at any of his um, any of his other appearances throughout the month, actually. But here, the die was cast, and he, as a heel, is going to be facing The Undertaker at Ground Zero. I remember, Bob, we were talking back in October when Sean was still the champion, he was going in to face Sid the next month at Survivor Series. I think it was actually you who dropped the idea of a possible Sean heel turn during or immediately after the match, and we just laughed you up, basically, Eric and I, I think. And now we've gone ahead and done it. Before we get to where he's going to play as a heel, where he stands on the card, from a very simple perspective now, is this the right move? Have they done it at the right time? Well, I mean... I was a bit surprised, you know, the day after Austin goes down hurt, to then take, you know, let's say Austin's out for five months. You know, I think October is very optimistic, um, but we'll see. Let's say Austin's out for the rest of the year. Um, it's a brave person that the next day then goes ahead with a, a heel turn of who is now your de facto number one face. Um uh, yes, like uh, inertia-wise, it makes complete sense. The, the, the story they set up the week before, and to the point, the story they've been laying down for the last year or so, it all makes sense. And you know, Austin will, uh, Michaels will get cheered in a lot of places. It doesn't take a lot for him to get booed just because of the the, the the split in the audience. You go back to to, to Survivor Series last year as a classic example. Um, the the promo was very good. Not that I think you know Sean needs much ammunition to to cut a heel promo. Um, does the turn make sense now? I don't know. Um, you know, now I don't, you know, if Austin's not going to be back for a while, uh, you know, the shoehorning the Patriot into the main event next month, which feels weird. I know they've got Undertaker, they've kind of got Ken Shamrock, but none of those feel like great number one face guys. Um, so there's that. Um, but I guess, I mean, it, it now basically means that they can literally only do Sean and Brett in Canada. Because they do it in America, and now they're both going to get booed out of the building. Um, which is an interesting little hill to die on. It's an interesting little place to kind of plant your flag and say, shit, this is, we got one shot of this match, it's going to have to be north of the border. Um, then, it, then in which case, when Sean gets booed out of the building, there's an explanation for it. And Brett can be cheered, and we kind of know the deal there. Um... But yeah, I, I, like I, I don't inherently hate the move. I just question uh, what your insurance policy is now. Sh- Austin's injured. Yeah, that is interesting. I'll come back to that in a second. Craig, your, your thoughts on uh, any of that? Uh, it's very, very difficult to disagree with my very eloquent colleague uh, Bob. There, I mean, unless the WWF knows something about Austin's injury that we don't, uh, then it, it does. It does leave a massive, massive gap at the the top of the face uh, section of the card. I mean, yeah, like, like Bob alludes to, there, there are people there that might be 
top baby faces eventually, but none of them jump out as as they're right now. Uh, it, it does seem bizarre that WWF didn't revisit this decision uh, ahead of Raw after SummerSlam, but I mean we're stuck with it now, so we're going to have to see see where they go. But unless they go for sort of the heel heel in America, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart stuff, then it's difficult to really see what else they've got. Could say that Michaels has been slowly inching heel ever since Survivor Series, and now they finally pulled the trigger. You go back, listen to many, many interviews. You can even pick up the "Losing My Smile" one if you really want to, and you can look at it that way as ammunition to do so. I think Michaels plays an excellent heel. He channels his charisma, his I'm anger. Not sure he's playing a heel, is he? Yeah, <laughs> you know. You cut me off just before I was going to make that very point, Bob. Shawn Michaels now has the freedom to be Shawn Michaels, even more so than when he was a face. He can now be that arrogant, stuck-up, everybody-hates-me-I-don't-care prick, being exactly what he is backstage. And he is going to take that ball and he is going to run with it. My issue is the final catalyst, I've used that word a lot today, for the heel turn does appear to be what happened at SummerSlam. But that was an accident. So they could have kept Sean face at this point, perhaps. However, you've got to look at it the other way around, and it goes back to what I said when wrapping up. He hit The Undertaker with a steel chair. And he is going to get booed for that for weeks and months to come. WWF fans would take Sean hitting their own grandmother with a chair over hitting The Undertaker. Okay, So that is instant heat for Michaels, whether he likes it or not, to use one of his favourite phrases. So I can see why they did it in that respect. But it's from a situation where, in storyline terms, he didn't mean to hit The Undertaker. So when he talks about everybody dumping the controversy in his lap, he's got a point. And they say that, yes, that a heel should always believe what he's saying is right and he needs, to have, uh, he needs to have a grain of truth in what he's saying. I get all that and I agree with it and that's the case here. But I wonder if they've almost pulled the trigger a little bit too quickly. Maybe they should have let things simmer for a couple of weeks and then do the thing with the tag team match a bit later on, I don't know. Um, it felt a little too convenient to just to use the events at SummerSlam for completely switching Michael's character, especially when you consider, as you guys have both rightly said, the babyface side of the roster is now looking very depleted indeed. I mean, HBK can carry this off. He's, he's done that throughout the month, and he's, gonna, he's just going to go with this because, as we said, he can now just absolutely be himself without any inhibitions whatsoever. And <laughs> that's bad news for pretty much everybody, except for him and his buddies, I think. It's going to be a fun ride getting there. Um, I'm still not sure about him as much as I think he plays a great heel on the mic. I'm still going to be interested to see what he does in the ring, because he's going to have to tone down his in-ring style considerably now. He kind of did that in the match against Mankind on the 11th of August Raw. But he's going to have to keep that going forward. Do I trust him to do that? Is there still going to be that thing at the back of Sean's head saying, now nah, I can steal the show here. I'm going to give them a moonsault, whether it's whether my character would do it or not. I just wonder. I think his match with Undertaker next month is going to be really, 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 really interesting based on that to see how Michaels actually plays it in the ring. I think that could be fascinating. But Michaels is not going to turn up alone. He has a bit of a team with him now. 
He talked about his insurance policy before the match against Mankind on the 11th of August, who turned out to be none other than Mr. Rick Rude. Um, not wearing a mask, much to Bob's chagrin, as we saw him wearing a mask in his ECW appearance back in January. But, uh, Rick Rude is now part of this stable, albeit not in the way that was originally intended, according to, um, according to the torch at least. Michaels and Rude were going to be the head of whatever stable this was going to be. Michaels backstage was not happy with that. And of course, whatever Michael says goes. So Rude is still aligned with them. But they've also played up the angle of him being an insurance policy, as he calls himself, insurance salesman, for anybody who might want to acquire his services. Uh, Craig, Rick Rude playing a outside of the ring only, because he can't get in the ring anyway, heel character in 1997, aligning himself at least temporarily with Shawn Michaels. Can that work? It seems a bit of an odd fit. Uh, I mean... I'll, I'll, are the audience that the WWF attempting to capture now even really know who Rick Rude is? Uh, and I mean, well, isn't that the point? They're trying to capture the WCW audience from, well, the, the 80s audience that the WCW have got at the moment. Um, they're trying to, you know, we've seen Slaughter, we've seen Rude. They're trying to bring back some of the names from the 80s because WCW seems to be pulling across a lot of that older fan base, I think is the logic. Yeah, I, I guess on that front, but I mean, if, I guess if you loved Rick Rude in the, in the 80s and early 90s, are you really going to tune into Raw just to hear him speak? I don't know. Uh, I, I, based on Bob's point, which is, uh, which is right, there, there's some logic in it, and I very much doubt he's on, he's on a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, Rude makes, Rude in his first promo before Michael's kicked up a bit of a fuss, seemingly, made significantly more sense than anything he's done in ECW this year. As in, it, it felt like he had a motive and a reason to be there and not just a load of bullshit because ECW thought we'll use him and then we've got, we can't really do anything with him. Um, but, yeah, like, I, you know, I, I don't know where... Yeah, I mean, Michael's his game plan, whatever he's been here with WWF, has been to have a bodyguard. This is also the classic example. You know, it's the guy that can draw heat on the outside of the ring. Um, I don't know whether the logic is to have Hunter at ringside or the fact that, you know, maybe to have China at ringside, which probably makes more sense, although it might start killing Hunter's gimmick if Michaels has got China as well. Um, that could be a problem. Um, but yeah, like Rude just feels like an odd fit. Um, you know, it felt like the WF had some, you know, Rude and Michaels, you know, kind of made sense, sort of. Like Rude was Michaels' you know, insurance policies, bodyguards, backup plan. Now that Michaels has kind of aligned himself with Hunter and China, like, well, Rude doesn't really need to be there, um, which isn't the best spot. So I, I wonder whether they'll just kind of try and forget that and push him onto someone else, um, which would make sense. But yeah, you know, I, 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 I'll see where it goes. Uh, I, I'm unconvinced yet. But yeah, I think Rude, Rude made sense for a week and now I'm not sure he does. You've got Rude there and you're going to be using him week after week. You might as well align him with somebody else, uh, absolutely. Yeah, you brought me on to the next point there with Hunter and China coming down to ringside during his match with Mankind. Completely unexplained in WWF storyline. I think the only interaction Michaels and Helmsley have had on screen was a match on Raw in June 1996. I can't think of anything else other than that. So it's completely unexplained and at time of recording... 
There was no Raw at the beginning of this week and there isn't one next week either. There's no Raw until September the 8th, I think I'm right in saying. But it's not. There's, they haven't said why Helmsley and China are there. If you know behind the scenes, you know, but that's very, very few of us. It looks like they're going to be changing Helmsley's character as well, if I've read this between the lines correctly, because he came out just wearing shirt and jeans on the 11th. It looks like he's dropped all vestiges of the blue blood character now. He was talking in what I presume is his normal accent. No, no K, no bow, no nothing like that. So that's going to be something to watch going forward. I think China on the outside, presuming that Rude does drift away, is going to help Michaels get some heat from people who still might otherwise want to cheer him. Which reverse back to what I said earlier, if he doesn't really heal up his in-ring style. Having China outside is going to help him get some serious booze there. I'm still not really sure where Helmsley plays into it. It looks like he's, by dint of his very real friendship with Michael, has got himself quite a nice gig here. And um, as regular listeners will know, I'm <laughs> not sure he absolutely deserves such a position, but he's been granted it, so let's, let's see what he can actually do. Yeah. Having Michaels in some sort of heel group is probably a better move than having Michaels a heel on his own. It's going to help ensure that he does still get booed in places that would otherwise want to cheer his offense, if not his character. And because they've put so much time and effort into this, he is now undoubtedly, straight away, rightly or wrongly, the number one heel in the company. Which brings us to one Brett Sergeant Hart in the company until about 11 p.m. on the 3rd of August, 1997, the exact same time as he became the World Wrestling Federation champion. Michaels and Hart are not going to be aligned on screen. I don't think anybody is going to be surprised by me saying that, although Vince seems shocked on the 4th of August Raw. You're bloody... Come on, Vince. Come on, mate. Don't insult our intelligence. So Bret Hart is now in what looks like being an upper mid-card at best feud over the WWF Championship with the Patriots, of all people, who they are trying to build. I'll give them that. He's got a lot of clean wins on television. But it's still the Patriots. Still a match Brett is going to win easily. And Bob, with Sean being such a natural on the mic as a heel, and being able to draw heat the way he is by just being himself, and Brett, as much as he tries, still comes across as rather clunky and awkward on the microphone, even as a bad guy. I don't think it's much of a secret that they, the feeling backstage must be that Sean is going to scoop Brett's heat. You'd think they'd have been aware of this turning Sean heel. So what happens to Brett now? I suspect they'll try and keep them apart until they, yes. they're ready to do that match. I mean, I did read this month that Brett was offered Michaels at WrestleMania next year and turned it down. I don't know what that's that means. A, that, I, I personally going to put that down to misinformation. Would Brett really turn down the opportunity to have a match with Sean and get his win back at WrestleMania? I'm dubious about that one. Carry on. Uh, well, I guess the logic is, is that we set up the match and then Sean mysteriously gets injured again and then all plans get thrown out. I guess. Oh, of course, of course. Um... But yeah, like it's, you know, I suspect we'll just keep them apart and kind of hope for the best. But they're, they're, they're kind of both, you know, Michael's Undertaker. Okay, Michael's Undertaker makes sense for, for this next show. Um, you know, but equally, it sounds like they're going to take, you know, they're going to debut, you know, Isaac Yankum as Undertaker's brother Kane on that show, um, which is fine. And then Michael's is then left with nothing. Brett defeats Patriot. He's then left with nothing. Um, and they can't do this match in America because they'll both get booed out the fucking building. Um, 
so yeah, it's just a, just a weird situation. They really have kind of put themselves into a corner with not really many options. And I don't think they really had to do it. As I say, they could have just held Michaels off for a couple of weeks until they really sorted things out. Craig, uh, your thoughts? Yeah, uh, again, Jesus, um, I'm in full agreement with uh, with Paul, but there does, I mean, the, my thoughts on SummerSlam was that it showed uh, the lack of depth in the WWF roster anyway, and then when you're losing people with injuries, yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to see beyond some very obvious options what's, uh, what's coming up next, so what's part of them is interested to see what's next. Part of me is also slightly concerned that what's upcoming is going to be very short-lived and or not very good. Yeah, this is it. I'm... Sean probably wanted to turn heel or at least have the opportunity to just be himself all the time. All of the time. Even more so than before, as I said earlier. And I'm pretty certain it's safe enough to say that he didn't really care what that did to Bret Hart's character. <laughs> Bret Hart's heat. Was he bothered? Somehow I doubt it. But yeah, Bret was your top heel. He, for all the flaws during his heel run, he was getting monstrous heat. And that is going to be transferred to Michaels now straight away. Michaels can make that happen because he's infinitely better on the mic than Bret is. And you cannot now do that big marquee match of Sean v. Bret. Realistically. You, you can't do that match in America. You cannot have your main, I mean, I'm dying to see that match, absolutely, but you cannot do it in America now because, I say, fans will just shit on it completely. They'll, they'll be played out to a torrent of booze. You just don't want that for a main event, especially not one which has been in the offing ever since the 31st of March, 1996. But at the same time, they've got to get to that match somehow. Yeah, I don't see anybody with those two turning anytime soon. Well, Sean certainly won't. Brett can't turn back face. He can't. He's bad now people he wrestles 95% of the time in every single week you can't just switch him back baby face now no matter how depleted you are on that side of the roster so you've got to keep running with Brett being this anti-American guy but he's just going to be buried in the middle of the show in his segments with the Patriot were nothing special on on Raw this month they were real standard B-level pay-per-view heel defending against baby face who we all know has got no chance kind of thing so there is that and they're just going to I think they're going to bump along with Sean the Undertaker being their main program. You drop the Paul Bearer Kane thing in there somehow, I imagine, probably on the next pay-per-view, probably on the Grand Zero if the smarter, smart comments are to be believed. So yeah, they've got a lot of intrigue going forward into this uh, period, taking us up to Christmas and into the Royal Rumble. But um, I'm still not entirely convinced they know what their eventual destination is going to be. I said last month, I would have thought the ultimate destination would have been Brett defeating HBK at WrestleMania 14. Doesn't look like that's going to happen now. Where we are going to go is anybody's guess. There's one more quick thing. Just yeah, go, ahead. Move yeah, on. go ahead, Bob. Um, the WWF with Austin injured are now a heel-led promotion, which is almost uncharted territory for Vincent, man. Great call. Vince loves his chiseled babyface champions, who's the antithesis of the NWA. Heel on top, babyface chasing, can't quite get there. Maybe he'll win next time. Vince, it's all about the babyface, as we know. And now we got his top two heels are WWF champion and somebody who people want to see get their ass kicked. 
This is why I think you've you stopped just thinking out loud, Bob. You stumbled on a really good point. I think that's why they want to try to keep Austin around, even in a non-wrestling position, for as long as they can. Because otherwise it's going to be heel stuff all the way. And as good a heel as you could possibly be, if fans are booing for most of the show, then their enjoyment is going to be affected. So somebody they are going to cheer. And Austin was now really getting the big pops. His, the reaction he got when he came out of SummerSlam was huge. And they've got to capitalise on that while they can. And keeping that, because there's going to be somebody... Fans are going to want to cheer somebody. And with the drop-off on the babyface roster, with Austin not being around, that's something you really need to watch on. Atlantic City, New Jersey plays host to the final roar of the month. Vince interviews Rick Rude who wastes no time bringing us all of the classic lines. He calls himself an insurance salesman and he was paid a handsome sum to get the job done. You supply the buck, I supply the bang. WWF is now in for a rude awakening. Owen the Bulldog in action against the LOD. This time it's Animal who's struck by Henry's slot bucket and Owen gets the victory. All three teams scrap afterwards. Sean and Hunter will face Undertaker and Mankind later. We get a brief word from Mick in which he makes clear that he and Taker might not be able to trust each other. Now Sean has a pop at Vince who he calls Caesar, having him be the same ring as the Undertaker three weeks before Ground Zero. He also isn't crazy at being forced to the team with Helmsley as I don't need tag team partners. Funk vs Christopher is next. Flash hits the 450 for a rare pinfall win. Undertaker tells HBK that the score will be settled today, and Mankind, I never forgive and I never forget. Shamrock takes on the Sultan and wins with an ankle lock. The NOD are in the ring for an interview and Farouk knew all along that Armin was weak. New recruit Rocky calls the fans pieces of crap for turning on him. Rocky Maivere is a lot of things, but sucks is not one of them. It isn't about colour, it's about respect. Crush appears on the Titan Tron and offers the nation of constipation a fight in the parking lot. Here's Hunter for a word. Michaels does the crime and I pay the time. Again? He gets cut off though as the car park rumble begins. It doesn't last long as the Barikas steal DOA's bikes. Goldust interferes to attack Double J during Pillman and Dress's latest match, which of course means Pillman loses again. An incensed loose cannon grabs the mic. He wants one more match for Goldust. If he loses, he will leave the WWF forever. But if he wins, he gets Marlena as his personal assistant for 30 days. Pillman stirs the pot by suggesting Dakota is his love child. Goldust snaps, but all of that is enough for Marlena to accept the challenge. Patriot vs Vader opens the second hour as Brett looks on. Wilkes picks up another pinfall win after hitting Vader with a full Nelson slam, or as it's now being called, the Uncle Slam. Vader gets some seconds after the match and then Brett lays the Canadian flag over the fallen Patriot. Vader doesn't take kindly to this and he snaps the flag and starts putting the fist to Hitman in what could be a babyface turn. After a dramatic video package in which Vince pays tribute to Austin's fortitude at SummerSlam, we get a sit-down interview with Stone Cold by JR. He got planted headfirst into a map by a 245-pound man, but shit happens. Despite that, Owen Hart now has hell to pay. Austin is pissed off, but it is better to be pissed off than pissed on. No matter what the doctors say, Steve Austin will be put on his black trunks and black boots again, and he will be whipping somebody's ass. In the Battle of the Reluctant Tag Team Partners is our main event as Michaels and Helsley show an interesting amount of tag team coordination in this one. 
After getting tossed out of the ring, HBK calls Rick Rude down to ringside. The dead man gets the hot tag and the Rude goes to smack him with a chair that Taker sees it coming. After a choke sound to Hunter, Michaels then takes the chair and absolutely smashes it over Undertaker's head twice. He bleeds heavily from the head as the heels fearfully mull over what they've done. We get the zombie sit up and a new team of Michaels and Helmsley make a run for it. A shot in the ring of the destroyed chair surrounded by Undertaker's blood is our final visual as this show ends. I got three words. Die, Rocky, die. That's the gratitude I get from you pieces of crap for all my blood, my sweat, and my tears. You know, hey, this isn't about the color of my skin. This is about respect. I became the youngest intercontinental champion in WWF history. And what did it get me? In arenas across the country, I heard chants of Rocky Sucks. Well, Rocky might be is a lot of things, but Sucks isn't one of them. You know, hey, that's not a black thing. It's not a white thing. And hey, let's talk about a racist faction. You want to talk about a group that's prejudiced? Let's talk about the DOA. The DOA epitomizes racism. But hey, you know what the hell with the DOA? I want to make one point to all you jackass fans out there. Rocky Maivia and the new nation of domination lives, breathes, and dies respect. And we will earn respect by any means necessary. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh-oh. One more big discussion point before I open things up a bit, and that's um, Commissioner Slaughter, who joined us on the also on the 4th of August Raw. Somewhat without fanfare, really, the, the Hart Foundation were in there gloating at the top of the show about their, their wins, or losses, at SummerSlam. And JR just said rather casually, oh, yeah, whatever, and now we're going to introduce our new commissioner. Here's Sergeant Slaughter. And that was it. And he didn't get much of a pop when he came out. I don't know who the crowd were really expecting. I don't think it's unfair to say that Slaughter would not have been the crowd's number one choice anyway. It doesn't appear as though anybody else really mooted backstage it was going to be, but it turned out to be Slaughter. And Craig, the real reason I'm bringing this up is because this is another thing which WWF haven't done very often. They've had babyface authority figures before. We've had Jack Tunney and we've had Gorilla Monsoon recently. Roddy Piper as well, but he was an outlier. He was just there for a few weeks and he was just being Roddy Piper. Taking Jack Tunney and Gorilla Monsoon as our examples, they didn't really get involved that often. If there was, say, a big injury or somebody had to relinquish the belt, then we would see them. But their role was pretty much just spoken of and not seen. At least in the context of the Raws which we've uh, been viewing this month, Slaughter has been involved in everything be it for heel or babyface. He sends the DOA away from the ring. He sets up the Hart Foundation's matches. He stops Austin interfering in a match between Owen and Owen and Dude Love. He is everywhere. And I just wonder if this is something they're trying to do to, again, just go back to what you said, almost push the babyface cheer-ometer up a little bit. Because otherwise I can't see why he needs to be involved in everything. What do you think? Uh, yeah, it does seem a little bit over the top, but he's involved in everything. I do like uh, 
have to admit the, the aspect of him being a little bit more physical than perhaps some of the uh, previous commissioners, although uh Monsoon did get physical, but that was mostly just getting battered by Vader. But, uh, yeah, as an extra dimension, but, yeah, I, there is no reason that he should be involved in what genuinely felt like every single uh, segment, if not every single quarter of this role. It was, uh, yeah, but, again, it comes down to the lack of... Uh, any other baby faces out there, but yeah, no, the, the, we. I don't think even Sergeant Slaughter's family want to see Sergeant Slaughter that often. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not convinced that the WWE fans are going to be any more sympathetic. Well, they'll seem a bit less often now, anyway. It's, um, Bob, yeah, your thoughts on that, and also, is this just yet another recent example? And they're doing this way too often, in my opinion, of the WWF following WCW's lead. Of, you know, Slaughter almost taking the JJ Dillon role here. Ah. Uh... Albeit uh, perhaps more physically so. Well, maybe I don't know. Like you know, I mean, I, I like I, I do like the fact the commissioner comes in and everyone listens to his work. Like he he, he roughed up the he rough up. He kind of talked down to the the Hart Foundation. They all reacted like he was the ultimate authority. I quite like that. That set us that set us um, stall out the gate in terms of what he's going to be going forward. But yes, let's use him less frequently, please. Yeah, but, he's using, but I think they're already in danger of burning him out on the audience if he's involved in every single segment, especially as, and again, once again, it seems like everything we say on this show comes back to Sean being Sean, but it is what it is. Sean expressly playing up that Vince McMahon is the owner of the company and the person who calls the shots, even in kayfabe perspective. I mean, he called him Caesar during a segment on the August 18th Raw. I mean, unless you know that Vince McMahon has some modicum of control and what you're seeing on your television, that comment makes absolutely no sense. So they're playing up that Vince owns the company and makes matches, etc., etc. So if you're having somebody on air getting involved, doing all sorts of other stuff, supposedly creating matches, breaking up scraps, telling people what they can come to ringside, threatening them, threatening them with suspension if they don't wear a dress, you know, normal bog-standard stuff like that. So... Um, the link between the two, it's a very hard circle to square, and you probably need to have a lot of natural charisma if you're going to be on stage that, on, on, on screen on stage that much. Not sure Slaughter has it. He is the sort of person who people do listen to, just by his sergeant um, persona. But, um, I think it could get old very, very quickly, and I'm still not really in love with the idea that you need an on-screen authority figure. I don't really care who makes the matches. I don't watch to see them being made. I watch to see them take place. I think it helps to have a guy that can come in and just sort shit out every now and then. But that, that was why Botwinkle was so good in WCW. Good call. You know, he, didn't, he didn't appear for six weeks. They kept mentioning him, but he wasn't on the shows. And then they said, right, Botwinkle's going to come in and sort shit out. Botwinkle came in and what he said stood. That's fine. But I don't think you need guys across TV doing everything because I think it devalues their presence, you know. Um, I think also to a point, it, you, you need the ultimate babyface authority to come in and cut off the heel after they've run rampant for a while. If he's always there, like, you either the heel can't get over because he can't do anything, or you end up with this weird situation where the, the babyface authority here can't, isn't stopping the things he should be stopping. Like, it makes sense when Bockingham flies in for the, the next show, or whatever, Dylan's kind of similar. It just doesn't quite, it doesn't make sense. He's almost being too fair, in a way, and as such, there's no real payoff for anybody. 
I don't think that he should just be the person who always favours the baby faces. The fact that he is sending them away from ringside when they need to be as well, that's a good thing. It, it makes sense if you want to try to apply as much realism as you could ever really want to to this situation. But yeah, if nobody really gets any heat off him and there's no real comeuppance for anybody, then it doesn't really... You're not really gaining anything from him being there. He said because you feel he has to be because he is the guy in charge. And... You, do, you, do you really want this sort of baby face to get his uh, if, if, he's, if a baby face has been hard done by by a heel do you not want to build that to tune in next week to see said baby face get his revenge rather than seeing Sergeant Slaughter come out and be like let's turn this into a tag match yeah absolutely indeed yeah it's um the ultimate story in professional wrestling is the baby face eventually getting his over the heel no matter how long it takes if you just have somebody setting up or let's have a random tag match at the end of the show, then it kills that. It doesn't really keep things ticking. And the babyface, tuning in TV every week to see, the, see if the babyface is going to do it this time. That's been going ever since the major televising of professional wrestling was Dumont back in the 50s, for goodness sake. And just having somebody break it up and cut those things off at the past just because it abides by the rules doesn't really work. So, yes, they've got... Again, it's an interesting idea of having somebody on screen making sure everybody plays it by the book. Not sure it's going to be particularly interesting if he keeps doing the same thing week after week after week. But we shall see. It's been quite a busy month this month. And, um, Bob, there's a couple of things you wanted uh, to bring, bring into the discussion. So uh, go ahead and we'll, uh, we'll take it. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just the final half hour of the 18th of August Raw. I mean, I know we've kind of covered the, the, the Michaels Helmsley stuff already, so maybe not too much go on there. Um, but point number one would be the, the angle or the match where Paige would beat Vader cleanly. Um, and just the thought of, you know, discussion point of what they're doing with Patriot. And then the post-match angle where Vader kind of attacked Patriot, Brett came out, um, Vader was going to Vader bomb him, and then Brett kind of laid the Canadian flag on top of Patriot, and Vader wasn't really happy with that, and he snapped the Canadian flag and that kind of thing. Uh, we speak about potential baby faces on that side. Vader would, you know, in theory, be a horrendously bad shout. Um, but I don't think Vader's going anywhere as a heel, so we might as well try it. Is It, it would be my thought on that. Um, and then, yes, this... Well, I, I, I'll play it now. This really bizarre kind of segue into an interview with Steve uh, into, into an interview with Steve Austin Stone Cold Steve Austin won the Intercontinental title that night at SummerSlam, but in return lost all feeling in his extremities, becoming temporarily paralyzed. Another look now at the videotape shows Austin's spine being compressed, forced down causing what is known as spinal shock syndrome, or more commonly a stinger. Here now from a different angle, notice the placement of Austin's head clearly below Owen Hart's legs, how Stone Cold Steve Austin got up from this is truly nothing short of remarkable. It's the kind of things that young men grow up and, and tell their sons about. Most mortal men would be on a stretcher 
or in the back of, of an ambulance after receiving a pile driver like that. But not the toughest SOB in the WWF. Fighting the numbness of partial paralysis, Austin somehow, somewhere in some place, found the strength, the courage, and the fight to get to his feet. Certain circumstances define certain competitors in our sport, and Steve Austin's intestinal fortitude has defined his continuing legacy here in the World Wrestling Federation. Austin this morning. Well, Vince, it was a very a unique morning to say the least. I've had better breakfast, I'll tell you that, but he's no doubt a man's man, and he's got a great fighting spirit. As a matter of fact, I want to say this. There's a little bit of colorful language uh, in this interview, so be aware of that, but uh, this interview occurred this morning in Steve Austin's room in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. All right, let's take a look. Well, Steve, I want to thank you for allowing us to come to your hotel room here. I know uh, you've got a very busy and a very crucial 24-hour period here in Philadelphia. You're seeing a specialist tomorrow about your neck, but thanks for giving us a little of your time. Well, you're welcome for the time, but if you're here to ask a bunch of questions, you might as well start asking them. Otherwise, I'll throw your ass out the window. And it, 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 to cover the hotel room, this ain't a hotel room that I would stay at. You know, when I got hurt in SummerSlam and I got dumped on my head, no one called me and said, hey, Steve, you okay? And no one ever sent a card, nothing like that. Not that I would expect it, but at least I would, you know, maybe a call just to see what the hell's going on. Well, the hottest damn wrestler in the world, but I got nothing. So the WWF seems fit to put me in a room like this with all this fruit and trash like this. You want a pear? You want an apple? You want you want a banana or something? Yeah, make yourself at home, man. Well, but if you've got questions to ask, go ahead and ask them because I'm, I'm getting a little tired of you. I'd like for you to address three things, if you don't mind. Sure. One is SummerSlam, your paralysis after being driven in the mat from the tombstone by Owen Hart. The second thing is what the doctors have told you. And thirdly and lastly, what you perceive your future to be here in the WWF. Well, let's start with SummerSlam. The bottom line is I'm Intercontinental Champion, right? Right. Well, that, that, that's that. But aside from that, at the end of the match, close to the end of the match, when, when uh, Owen Hart dumped me on my head, you figure out I weigh 245, 250, bam, you get planted in the mat, it happens. And uh, for basically about 50 seconds, I couldn't move my arms and my legs, and I didn't know if I ever would move again. It's pretty, pretty damn scary. So, uh, you know, I'm through with that. Looking past that, I've watched that on tape probably 30 or 40 times, and it still sucks each time I see it. But I'm over it, and I'm moving around, and I'm happy about that. But uh, Owen Hart has got hell to pay. You get dumped on your head, you get in the position that I was put in, it ain't worth a damn. And I'm just uh, a little bit off. Well, I'm not a little bit off. I'm a whole lot off. But you know what they say, it's better to be off than on. But Owen Hart's got hell to pay when I come back. And you, you say you got another question. Well, what's the other question? Well, the doctors. You've, you've, you've seen several yeah, I've doctors. I've seen a couple of doctors. And one guy said, uh, uh, maybe you should do something else. Well, Steve Austin doesn't do anything else. What I do is wrestle, and I'm the best wrestler in the world. And can't nobody tell me different. So I'm supposed to see the top guy, the top spine guy in the country tomorrow here in Philadelphia and see what he has to say. And it doesn't matter really what he says. The, the, the end result, the decision's mine. He can sit there and say, don't do this, try not to do this, whatever. But the bottom line is, I'm the one that makes the decision. So I'll sit there, rethink things, and go from there. But uh, regardless of what he says, Owen Hart's got hell to pay. You know, when you do something to what, when you do what he did to me, you know, if it's my last step in life, you can damn well bet he's going to get the shit kicked out of him one way or the other. And that's it. You know, I don't know when, where, how, or what, but it's going to happen. As far as my future, don't sit there and try to butt in because I'm talking, right? Okay, as far as my future goes, hell, like I said, I'll listen to what the doctor says, 
but I'm going to do what I want. The future for Steve Austin, as far as I'm concerned, is to put on his black trunks and black boots and show up. I'm going to take a few days off. I'll probably take a few weeks off because, you know, when you're sitting there at the house, you watch a film of uh, getting paralyzed in there 50 seconds. You watch that 30, 40 times. You know, it kind of you, you get a little depressed. So I drank a few cases of beer. I'll tell you exactly what I did. I just ride around in my four-wheeler, drink a few beers, and sit there and think about it. But uh, I'm going to go see this doctor and see what he has to say. And But as far as I'm concerned, the only way I can see my future is to be Stone Cold Steve Austin, continue on right through the top in the WWF, just like I've done since I've been here. All the damn bureaucratic red tape, all the bull that I've been through, it's taken me eight years to get to where I'm, where I'm at right now. If you think for one split second that a pile driver is going to stop me, it ain't going to happen. Did it slow me down? Damn right, but it ain't going to stop me. Ground zero, sub-zero, whatever the hell you want to call it, in Louisville, I'll be there. Whether it's to uh, hand the belt over, if I decide maybe it's time to hang it up, I'll do that. I don't think that's going to happen. I think when uh, Ground Zero rolls around, you'll see Stone Cold, don't wipe your nose, it pisses me off. You'll see Stone Cold Steve Austin, and don't smile. You'll see Stone Cold Steve Austin, a black pair of t trunks and a black pair of boots, and I'll be out there whipping somebody's ass. I don't know what kind of match it is. It's some kind of little uh, four tag teams or some kind of shit like that. Is that right? That's right. Okay, well, I'll be there. And the, 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 what, what, what gets me is, is that Steve Austin is at a new level now because, you know, if, if I was pissed off before, I'm a lot more pissed off now, and that makes me even more dangerous. Not a liability, and that's the bottom line. You got anything else you want to say? No, sir. Then get the hell out. So, I mean, the Austin interview was what it was. It was fine. It was Austin with a bit of attitude, you know, a bit of bravado, a guy trying to play in character when he's, you know, clearly obviously quite concerned about his long-term well-being. But the video right before that, the, the, the package that led into it, where we have Vincent Mann narrating a clip, essentially describing what happened, obviously at SummerSlam, where Owen dropped upon his neck. And Vince was like, the human body's not designed to take that. And when Owen did the move, Austin's head was too low compared to where Owen's legs were. And it meant that Austin took all the weight of the move on his neck. But that's the idea. Like, it, it rested, it's meant to be real. When Undertaker tombstone pile drives someone, the, the illusion in storyline is that he's just driven them headfirst into the mat. It's not, oh, well, he got near the mat, but Undertaker landed the move on his knees. And I know this was an exceptional circumstance, and I know the idea was, well, they were trying to push Austin as being this badass, or essentially being paralysed, and then getting up and walking away. But it made fuck all sense. This is just like, well, you know, like, this the human body, and most people would have gone off in a stretcher, but Austin didn't. So well, most people would have just pinned him if this was. I don't like. I, it, it's this. I know it's 1997. Right? I know it's not 1994. I know the industry's moved on. I know we're in a world of Kevin Sullivan promos about the neighbourhoods and the whatever it was and all that kind of thing, right? And Paul Lee and on the phone and you know Nancy and shit like that. I know that's where we're at. But this isn't shooting. This just doesn't make sense. This runs perpendicular to everything else you do. Like, wrestling, the, the matches, the moves are meant to be real. Like, you know, the, the moves aren't meant to be sold. It's not like when, you know, someone like Rob Van Damme does a, a splash from the top. It's not like, oh, yeah, well, Van Damme hurt his knee because he landed on his knee because he's not meant to land on his opponent because that would hurt him. That's not, the, that's not the logic here. I just couldn't work that out at all. Those were, were two interesting segments from that, that last half hour of the 18th Raw. Craig, pick up on any of that. 
if you can. <laughs> uh, I think we just had a, a shoot interview there with uh, with Bob. Uh, yeah, um, I take it by pick up on that. You mean from the Patriot stuff onwards, or just the story? okay? Yeah, anything you want to take from it? Yeah, anything is up to you. Yeah, I mean when I was when I was watching this, my my uh, thoughts on the Patriot Vader stuff was not a bad match. WF totally behind the Patriot stuff, but the fans don't appear to care in the slightest about him. He literally does seem like he's at least 10, if not 15 years too late to be breaking the WWF. This is really one of the most sort of, really the, the, the most confusing thing about watching this time uh, of the WWF. It just seems completely all over the place. One minute you've got sort of really throwback uh, guys like the Patriot, the, you're all American heroes. The next minute you've got gang stuff and you've got interviews with people like Goldust that's breaking the fourth wall. The next you've got gimmick matches just for the sake of gimmick matches rather than being an end to a feud. More often than not, they seem to be used to, to start the feud. You've got Vince McMahon explaining a, an angle that that gets Bob's blood pressure going a little bit too high that, that, that you wouldn't have previously seen before. You've got JR doing... One nine hundred phone ins that sort of reveal stuff, but it's just like it. It really and and I, I kind of used the analogy before. It is like they're just throwing everything at a wall to see what sticks. You almost think that if the WWF fans were going to get going to get all shit the bed excited about the Patriot, then the gang war stuff would then be dropped because it's clear to Vince that WWF fans want some sort of all-American hero again. If he gets shot on and they care about bikers, then next week we have a motorbike on a pole match. You know, it, it, it does just seem like everything is a reaction to something that's literally just happened. There's no sort of long-term thoughts to things. Everything's just hot shotted. Yeah, it, it, nothing really sort of makes sense. You, you go back and you, you look at stuff and you're like, why is Vader losing in less than five minutes to this shit guy in a mask who's got a really crap finisher? Why is Bret Hart coming out with the Canadian flag? Bret Hart and the Canadian flag thing makes sense for entering a programme with the Patriot, but why is it being used to turn Vader face? Why is Vader being turned face when Shawn Michaels is hot-shotted into turning heel when he could have maybe been kept face because Austin's injured? It's just nothing makes sense and everything's just moving so, so fast to even follow. And the stuff that is happening isn't you, you don't really feel invested in it. So on one level, it's good that it's going fast because it gets out of the way quickly. But another, you're like, why is this happening? Why indeed? <laughs> Motorbike on a pole match. I'm going to just bank that one for a little while. I'm going to wager with you £5, Craig, that um, we won't see an, um, uh, a motorbike on a pole match for the end of this year. Are you willing to take that bet? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's the answer I was expecting. Uh, yes, excellent points in the both of you there. Uh, I'll take each of them in turn briefly. Um, Patriot is the ultimate one-note character. I'm sure nobody here listening needs me to explain it to them. But he's getting the reactions. The very reactions he exists for. I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world. You know, wave all glory around and get people to chant USA. People are going to do it. Uh, a reaction is a reaction, right? And yeah, he's completely workaday in the ring. He's like, 
use a cricket analogy, he's like early 80s Bob Willis, you know, before heading the 81. And I'm not expecting a heading the 81-esque response from him at ground zero. No, no 8 for 34s here. He just goes out, he does his stuff, he does his shoulder brock, he does his full Nelson slam. People still cheer him. But he's getting clear wins. They are doing their best with this guy to try to at least vaguely convince us that... Uh, He's got any chance of winning. I don't believe for one second Brett's dropping the tile to him at ground zero. Uh, but they are trying. It's, they're not sending him out there to die, let's say that. Although, surely after Brett beats him at ground zero, he's pretty much done. Uh, Babyface Vader, that could work. I mean, again, they turned him in such a belt and braces way. Snapped the Canadian flag. Again, cheap pop. Okay. But it's something you can work from. Yeah. What kind of a babyface is Vader going to be? I don't want Vader to be a cuddly, dancing, big guy babyface. Ireland to be a babyface is a badass who rips through people. It's exactly as it should have been as a heel. That's the way they should be turning him face, because people are getting into him just going out there and kicking Rob for 18 months. He hasn't done that. He hasn't had the chance to do that. So what sort of quote-unquote good guy is he going to be? I don't know. He's... He's not particularly skilled on the microphone. He's not going to get himself over that way. So if he isn't allowed to go out there and just wreck shop every week, I don't see him turning face being any kind of silver bullet. I've got to be honest. And that's a concern of mine. And uh, the last thing, yes, Vince playing up how dangerous uh, a tombstone pile driver can be. Yeah, no shit, Vince, mate. Um, for seven years, we've had a, been the, the most deadly move in the company. And now we're told that if you get dropped on your head, it could really do you some serious damage. think that was kind of the point beforehand, mate. You know, do, do you get what I'm saying on that one? Um, yes. When real injuries normally happen in the past, no attention is drawn to them. The commentators don't mention them, but never brought up again. If somebody's away injured for a real injury, it doesn't get, get mentioned until they return. Here they're actually playing it up and they're trying to use it as a device to build more sympathy on Stone Cold. Sympathy, I don't think they need to build on because A, he's not your traditional sympathetic R-Shucks baby face anyway. And B, he is now getting pretty much 100% cheers. I still think it's took a while. I think a lot of the reports we've been getting in the sheets over the last few months, perhaps before uh, July... Certainly based on the TV and pay-per-views I've been seeing, they've overstated Austin's reaction a bit. But I'm going to say again, that pop he got at SummerSlam when the glass shattered and he came out, that's the big reaction they want for this guy getting getting to. This guy being the ultimate no-shit-taking ass-kicker, black trunks-wearing, don't-smile-at-me, don't-wipe-your-nose-in-front-of-me guy. I think people have now really bought into the Austin character. They want to get behind him. And I hope almost, that he can get back in the ring sooner rather than later, and he can capitalise on that. So yes, lots going on. Not a lot of it makes sense. They do have a few extra weeks now with the, the preemption for the US Open to sort everything out, and hopefully when they come back with and after the Ground Zero pay-per-view, they've got a real through line of the storylines they want to roll with, taking us up to and beyond the Royal Rumble. Which I think is a good a place as any to draw a close to the August 1997 WWF discussion for the month. It's been a long one. It's been a good one. It's been a fun one. Bob Bamba, thank you, my man. Yeah, Des Line and Boise and Bob Willis. This is not a great show if you're not in England. I'm beginning um, to think we need to put some 
what my employers would call release notes around with some of the um uh, <laughs> some of the podcast content. I I'll put a uh, you know a bibliography in with the podcast description just to fill in those references. Oh uh, yeah, well, Stacker Rooks twice at the SummerSlam one last year, so I'm moving on from there at least. Right. Yes. Thank you very much, Roy. It's been uh, been a lot of fun. It's a, it's a good show as always. And uh, yes, you I can be found at least on Twitter at Bobby Bamber. Excellent. So we always turn a negative into a positive on this particular show. Craig Wilson, thank you very much for joining us, my man. No, you're very welcome. An enjoyable show, but I am, of course, not talking about SummerSlam. <laughs> well, obviously. Craig, you have your own projects going on, which you can now tell the world about. Uh, cheap plug time uh, yes uh, if you want to hear me talk about wrestling or well not hear read even uh, you can find me uh, on my blog at ringthedambell.wordpress.com where we talk about lots of old stuff because whilst it's sometimes madder it's often better that's the new strap line <laughs> as is life you might say indeed madder better yeah I'm definitely going to remember that one going forward Yes, with that as now my, my own personal epithet, I have been Rory McNamara. You can find me on Twitter at R-O-R-S-D-M. We are, are, of course, the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Wrestling20YRS. With the boy Bob is at the helm, occasionally lets us moonlight when he's feeling particularly, um, uh, well, yeah, I'll let you judge for yourselves on that one. We have our website, Wrestling20YRS.com, all sorts of content on there. I have been told, as you've probably heard a couple of months ago, that I'll be compiling the top 20, not the top 10, the top 20. You've got a bit of ammunition from this show, if that helps. This show, I could just list this show if you want me to, and uh, so, uh, then my job is done. I'm very, very... Te- this, the hit rate from SummerSlam 97 is going to be pretty high. I've got at least three, possibly four viable contenders for that one. So, yes, you can tell I'm really looking forward to that. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Apple Music, whatever they call it these days, or your own uh, podcatcher apps, I think is what the cool kids call them, in uh, August 2017. We are on there, of course. Please leave us a review on iTunes, a five-star one if you don't mind. Drop us five bucks if you want to join us on Patreon. You will get early access to all podcasts as soon as they are available. When the boy Bamba gets them edited, edited, they are straight away. You do not have to wait till the end of the month for all of them if you are subscribed on any other app. Uh, any other thing I need to prog, Bob? Sounds about right. That we do. Did with... you mention, mention all the other shows this month? I am going to do that one more time. This was Volume 1, as I'm sure you know. Volume 2, Part 1, WCW looking at World One. Volume 2 for WCW uh, Part 2 of Volume 2 for WCW we'll look at Clash of the Champions. And Volume 3 is our ECW show, Taking in Hardcore Heaven. But for me, for Volume 1, I have been Rory McNamara. So from Bob Bamba and Craig Wilson, so long, everybody.